Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I'm Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime this week on the show. We are wrapping up our special bonus series of episodes for season 2.5, Ufa Table No Yaiba. We are looking back at some old episodes from the Weekly Stuff podcast, looking at us covering Kimetsu no Yaiba, also known as Demon Slayer. We've talked about season one. We've talked about the movie Mugen Train, and now we are going to talk about uh, season two of the show, including the Mugen Train arc. Uh, readapted from the and cut together from the movie, and then of course the entertainment the entertainment district arc, which is the main feature from season two of the show. Yep, that is today's episode. And as you will hear Sean say early in this episode, this is the weirdest anime season we've ever seen, just in terms of its structure. And so we spend mm-hmm. a lot of time breaking that down. We talk about the differences between the movie version of Mugen Train and the TV version. We talk about the bonus episode with Ren Goku. And then, of course, we dive into the big season two, uh, all of which I think is a good you know, lead up to season three, which is beginning just in a couple of days here on April 9th. And we will be back to review that season in detail once it has aired. So season 2.5 will live on. It'll probably live on for several years because there's more Kimetsu to come after this. Uh, But yeah, this is a nice little bonus as we are going through the history of UFO Table to hit some of their recent high points here. Yeah, and, and if you're, uh, like me, going to be rewatching season two in the lead up to season three coming out, it's a good time to to check this podcast out. If you Maybe if you listened to it back in the day to re-listen to it, or if you didn't follow us and you're a Japanimation Station listener, you never have ever heard this conversation, uh, I think it's a good one to prep you for some new Kimetsu no Yaiba that's right around the corner. Yep, and uh, very excited for that. So enjoy. Thank you guys for listening and uh, keep listening to season two of Japanimation Station UFO Table Moon Works, which is continuing on into Unlimited Blade Works and Heaven's Feel and a lot of good stuff as we uh, we're not quite close to the end of the season, but we're getting closer. We're getting closer, whatever, whatever that means for this weird. Those episodes are long yet to be aired for us, but for you guys. It's right around the corner. So, yes, continue to enjoy season two of Japanimation Station. Uh, we got a lot of good stuff for you. All right, let's talk about Kimetsu no Yaiba Demon Slayer season two. 
which is a very interesting thing we need to break down because yes. there's two parts to season two. Uh, spoilers from, you know, here on out if you haven't watched it yet or read the manga or whatever, just requisite warning. So season two aired it contiguously, but it's sort of two halves. You have the first seven episodes are one original prequel episode to the Mugen Train film and an arc. And then the next six are that film, the, the Infinity Train movie, cut up and re-edited with some new stuff into a six episode TV version. And that's the first seven and they have their own opening and ending and all of that good stuff. And then we have the 11 episode Entertainment District arc, although calling it 11 episodes is slightly misleading because the first one is double length and the final episode is almost double length, which I've never quite seen in a TV anime before. So it's this weird, it's kind of 12, 13-ish episodes in length. And so those are the two halves. And I think we should talk about both of them. There's more to say, obviously, about the Entertainment District arc because it's all new. But, um, you know, the, the Mugen Train arc is no slouch because they're taking a great movie and doing really cool stuff with it, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing to say with the season is that I think it is very clear that um, UFO Table is, like, given a lot of free reign with exactly what they want to do because this is the most bizarrely structured season of anime I've ever seen. Um, like, not in a way that's, like, bad, but in a way that's just, like, clearly what their, like, needs and interests as an anime production studio were completely catered to in terms of how to structure and time out this season. Uh, because, yes, it is a weird, like, total number of episodes that, like, if you put the runtime together, it's, it's like, 19 and a half-ish episodes of total runtime because the finale of the season, the last of the Pleasure District arc, is, like, basically almost exactly an episode and a half in length. But even the Mugen Train arc is weird because typically anime is... A TV anime episode is 23 minutes and 40 seconds long exactly. Like, it is exactly 23 minutes and 40 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. Well, and there's, like, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why you've got things like your, like, 90-second opening and in, in outro stuff, so that you get, like, some space in how you handle that in terms of, like, timing and spacing out your episodes. Sometimes you can cut a little bit into the outro. Maybe you don't do the intro and just, like, go straight to the episode. It's one of the reasons why the, like, end-of-episode bumper things exist of, like, in uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba, it's the Taisho Kusakusabanashi, you're, like, the you know, the little, like, kind of next on preview or jokey corner, those things happen partially because it gives you another thing that you can kind of space in time exactly how much you need in order to fit your exact 23-minute, 40-second window. Uh, the Mugen Train arc is fucking crazy. So the, every single episode is a completely different runtime. The first episode is 26 minutes, then it's 22 minutes, 25, 23, 21, 23, and 26. I have never seen that before. <laughs> I've never nuts. seen... It's just, it's whatever they want, which makes sense because the, this arc is just the movie edited into, I mean, it's the first episode, which is its own unique thing. And then the rest of the episodes are the movie edited out into episode chunks with like almost nothing cut out, changed or added. Like it is almost exactly the movie. Like the soundtrack is the exact same. The sequences of events and all that is the exact same. There's like a couple of times they will slightly move a scene in its order just to make spot for like an episode cut or the mid episode break but other than that it is just the movie so it has to be different episode lengths because sometimes the where the episode break would make sense is maybe a minute earlier than the normal episode length of, a, of an anime maybe it's like two minutes longer so you just go a little bit longer and just give exactly the amount of time you need for the individual episodes because when you get to the pleasure district arc 
all of that goes back to everything single episode other than the first and last one is exactly 23 minutes and 40 seconds long the first episode is exactly two times that and the last episode is exactly one and a half that so like this is like one of the most unique episode or seasons of anime i have ever ever seen in terms of like the times of episodes and things like that um it's just they got to do whatever the fuck they wanted because this is the team that made the most uh the highest like box office gross movie in the history of the japanese box office so of course they are given the leeway to yeah, say who's gonna say no right whatever the fuck you want if you want this to like not really be too full course who gives a shit like do whatever you need to to make it as good as you can make it definitely bodes well for the rest of this series because uh-huh. we've both read the manga the next one is pretty cut and dry it'll be the same length roughly as the pleasure district arc yeah. after that i don't know how they divvy it up mm-hmm. it's going to be very hard they're going to do whatever the hell they want with it, and that's fine. Um, you know, and yeah, it's... <laughs> I would be fascinated to have been in Japan while this was airing. I want to know what this looked like on TV. Like, did it air in, like, sometimes 35-minute slots? Yeah. Did they, like, you know, that last episode, what the fuck kind of time slot did that air in? Where were the commercials? I'm very curious about all of that. Um, certainly, we're watching it over here on Crunchyroll. None of that matters. We just get a great show. But it's really fascinating, and... Yeah, I think that it, it's very unique, but they use all of that great. You know, like I think the double length premiere was 100% the right call. Yes. I cannot imagine that being as effective in two separate episodes, even though you could theoretically split it very easily because it's exactly double, right? But it all being in one place matters. That finale, I can imagine the version of the finale that was edited down to 2340. I think it would lose a lot of the heart and soul of yes. what makes it special. So there's a lot of stuff like that. You know, I think one of the weirdest choices, but also best, is the last episode of the Mugen Train arc just does the full movie credits with Homura. Uh-huh. Like, it cuts out the theme song and just does movie credits at the end, which seems crazy for television, but how else would you end all of that? It's so key. If if you had Tanjiro going, Rengok-san, Rengok-san, and then cut into the normal, like, end credits song, it wouldn't work. Yeah, I the, the Mugen Train stuff, I think, is the... Like, it's in a production sense, it's kind of the most fascinating element of it to me, just because it's like they, they like, they just got to read the movie kind of exactly how they wanted, you know. Like, yeah. it's that the, the fact that they were able to use Homura, which I was really curious going into that last episode, because you know, UFO Table like it does this with like every movie they've ever made that I've seen, which is most of their movies, they do this of where the in credit song is like such a fundamental part of. Of, of like the end of the movie like it's a unique song that's written for the movie the lyrics are about it like the the in like credit scroll like has like imagery and stuff associated with it that feels like it is considered as far as i can tell to be like a dramatic part of the film that the film's not over until the very end of the end credits like so much so that the movie trilogy they did for the fate stay night heaven's feel arc like the three in credit song at the end of each of those movies is just three parts of one big kind of mega song with three movements that like each part of the each the lyrics of each part of the song track exactly the main character's sort of character arc throughout the films and if you listen to them back to back it's basically one giant song like they do this so much that i was very curious what are they going to do because i just assumed there's no way you can just 
play home like the entire like five minute song home at the end of this episode of anime that would be crazy and they just do it with the exact credit sequence from the movie and that's that's where i sat there as like yeah they just got it they just get to do whatever the fuck they want like they just they were given everything they needed for this because this is yeah. it, it, like an insane thing to be able to do for an episode of tv yeah so you know i think the way they re-edited the movie was super impressive i have uh-huh. to say like it worked for TV better than I thought it would. I still think the movie is the preferred version yes. of it. I think it's the better version. Um, there are new cuts throughout. There are, I think the count they gave was there are 70 new cuts. And a lot of those are little things you're not going to notice. Or they're there for the act break or for yes. the pre-post theme song. Any of that stuff. There are some notable fun new ones. Like there's, they show you the moment before Inosuke jumps up through the roof of the train. That's not in the movie where you see um, Nezuko like lighting him on fire. I thought that was funny. You get um, a couple other little moments like that. There's an extra action beat with Ren Goku in, in one of the middle episodes. There's um, the one, I think the conversation between um Tanjiro and the demon on top of the train is elongated by a couple of lines mainly to like because that is the episode that would have been the shortest and even though it would have come in like under 20 minutes or something so they filled that out a little bit Um, but overall like it's 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 very close it's the most impressive TV animation ever because it's from yes. the movie. Um, although, Jesus Christ, the, the the Entertainment District arc sure gives it a run for its money. And um, it's very effective. I think where they chose to open and end every episode is very sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly loved the second episode ends with the moment where Tanjiro in the dream cuts his neck. Yes. And the cut to credits shot is the blood splatter on the snow. That made me like stand up and cheer. That's such a good cut to credits. Yeah, yeah, I do think it is. It is. I'm with you that the obviously the movie is like the best version of this because it is like all this was designed to be a movie. Um, but if you are going to edit it into a TV show, um, and we'll talk about like why that was a super smart choice for them to do from a production sense. But if you're going to do that, this is the ideal version of it. And one thing I love is that it does make it for anyone coming to the show in the future. It just simplifies things, you know, because so many anime, like big anime series have this problem of like, what the fuck do you watch and how do you watch it and where do you watch it and what order, you know, it's like, oh, you got to watch these 10 episodes and then go watch this movie and then watch three episodes. And then there's this OVA they made two years ago, but actually it's set here in the interval between these two arcs, (laughs) you know, like some of these series, you just have to, it's like a fucking, you know, research project just to figure out how the fuck to watch it. Um, and there's something convenient about this of in whatever platform you're watching it um, for people of the future, you know, obviously it would be cool if you w- sought out and watched the movie version. But if you're just watching all the episodes in order, you can move totally seamlessly into this and just watch it as a TV show. And it completely works. And it's just a very straightforward way to watch the entire series. Um, and I think that's one of the things that is cool about this is just kind of like a thing for the future to just kind of simplify things for future audiences. Definitely there's the obsessive side of my brain that likes, even if I never watch it this way again, that there are numbered episodes Uh for the Mugen Train stuff between, you know, the arcs. And so it's just, you literally have all the manga content in the anime, 1 through 26, and then the next 18 episodes, and it's all there. It's also fun to kind of see this alternate world version of what would it have looked like if they had done this as a TV show, Mm because I think this is roughly how many episodes it would have been and how they would have divvied it up. It works very well. And you get the added bonus of, hey, what would it look like to have a theme song and ending for a Mugen Train arc? And we get it, and it's by Lisa, and both of those songs kick ass. It's great. 
Yeah, my god, the opening, particularly the opening Akeboshi, um, yes, is so good. I think that's probably like all the the four opening and endings, like like all the songs for this season are great. I think probably Akeboshi is my personal favorite. It's like that, or it's the opening for the Pleasure District arc, but. Like, I lean towards the opening for the Pleasure District arc, but I wouldn't fight it. They're both phenomenal. They're, I think they're I great like, openings. I like the opening for the Pleasure District arc more. I like listening to Akeboshi on its own slightly more, I think, is where the okay. split comes for me. And that's personally, I'm like, I'm just a big Lisa fan anyways. Like, and I love Aimee, but like, Aimee is always an artist that to me, her music is so clearly, for like movies and stuff, is like so clearly built for whatever that show or that movie is. Um, like Kajigoto Yuki must have had like um, part song credit on some of the stuff that they, that for those two songs for Aime because it feels like it's, it's has her influence in there because they've worked closely on a bunch of other Yuto Table stuff as well. Um, but Akeboshi is yeah. just like that's just like I could I just listen to that song whenever I was listening to it literally like five minutes before we started recording the podcast just to like psych myself up for it. And I was listening to the Aime song. I was listening to her version on the first take uh, YouTube mm, channel yes, where they replace the uh, backup vocals with horns. And it's perfect. And that's mm -hmm. actually my favorite version of that song. But yeah, I uh, all the theme songs are good. Yeah. Akaboshi, though, as a as a theme song for this awesome movie we all love, where Ren Goku finally gets his place in a theme song and all of that stuff. Yes. It's perfect. It's amazing. I love all the imagery of the train they play with. I think the ending song is also very good. Um, the end credits song in season one was not my... I thought it was fine, but it wasn't my favorite part of it. I think both of the end credits songs here are better, and I really like the Lisa end credits song for the Mugen Train arc. We only hear it a couple of times because the first episode and the last episode don't have them. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, this time for both of them, they're like kind of like they're like song songs, whereas the Fiction Junction Lisa song um, was more that was like a mood piece for the first season more than right. it was like a song to exist in its, on its own sake. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Um, we also get all of the next episode preview stuff, which I am firmly now in um, the camp. Kimetsu has the best next episode yes. previews I've ever seen because they just, especially this season, they started completely ignoring the next episode preview function of it and just do little skits and like tone pieces and stuff. And they are riotously funny. And of course here they were able to do a bunch with Rengoku and they're so fun. Yeah, the Rengoku ones are fun. They, they have... There, there are two of them in this season one in Mugen Train and then one in the Pleasure District arc that are like maybe the two funniest versions of this I've ever seen in an anime the the Mugen Train arc one is the one where fucking uh, uh, Nezuko like in, in Tantra has a weird dream where Nezuko is turned into like a giant ripped version of her yes. with like a big fat like <laughs> butt chin and it is the weirdest most surreal but fucking hilarious thing and he like wakes up and he's like oh my god it was all a dream oh my god um that I lost my shit completely when I saw that it's so funny <laughs> Yeah, the, they're so good. Um, and we haven't even talked about the fully original 26-minute uh -huh. episode they also gave us here, just as a bonus, that is a Rengoku solo episode. And it's phenomenal. It's so good. Yeah, it's 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 just very nice to get more Rengoku, you know, because he's obviously... Yeah. He, he shines very bright, but he's not really in the series that much in the, the broad scope of things. So it's good to get a little bit more with him. And, and in particular, that episode has that scene where he sheathes his sword near the end and it like intercuts with him and then like his father from like 20 or 30 years ago defeating a demon protecting yes. the same woman um which is a great it's just an incredible sequence of like animation and direction but it also i think is a it, it's an interesting scene to watch 
both from the perspective of someone who's already seen the movie and knows the full story and also having read the manga and knowing, you know, the like sort of the epilogue stuff, the Mugen Train arc that will be in the first episode of, of the Pleasure District arc for the anime. Um, and so you'd know what his relationship with his father has actually become like in detail and watching it in that context, but also thinking about if you're someone who'd never seen any of this and you're just coming into it, you'd see that scene in a totally different light, right? When you know that his relationship with his father has like totally deteriorated and his father has become an alcoholic and has kind of abandoned his responsibilities as a demon slayer, that sequence is so tragic. Whereas if you were seeing it for the first time, it would set you up to see Rengoku's admiration of his father without yet knowing that there's this whole other current to their relationship. I thought that that, like, that is a like, really masterfully done scene um, that is very satisfying whichever angle you come at it from. Absolutely. I think that's the best like emotional center of that episode. I also have to give a shout out, though. It is pure, just 100% fan service, but the amount of prequelization that episode gives to mm -hmm. the moment in the movie where we meet Rengoku and he's going, Umai, yes. Umai, Umai, which I have seen that movie, I think, five times and then also the TV version, and I laugh every time mm -hmm. because the way he says Umai is so funny. And that episode is, the spine of that episode is basically prequelizing how he gets the bento boxes. Yeah. It's just pure fucking fan service. If any other show did that, I would roll my eyes at it. I loved it. Give me more. Did the whole anime of him getting bento boxes. It's so funny to me. Yeah, it's really good. And it does, like, it legitimately, like, it, it changes your frame of reference for that scene from the movie, which is interesting. Like, yeah. it, it's, it's one of those things that I really appreciate that they put this in here, just because if you're someone who's already watched the movie, it, it helps... I think you enter the movie with a slightly different mind frame that lets you watch it in a slightly different way, which is cool. Yeah, I just just having Rengoku kind of have this history there, the food he's eating, like he worked to save those people and they yeah. appreciated him and all of that. And you, and you see how utterly devoted he is to his fundamental task, which is not killing demons, it's protecting people. Like yes. that, I think, is the thing that defines him as a character. Um but yeah, I also just have to say, again, I have seen the movie so many times. I own the Blu-ray. I saw it in theaters three times, all of this stuff. So when I'm seeing the TV version, I know every beat of this fucking thing. It still had me on the edge of my seat. Yeah. It still had me like going, yes. It still had me going, oh my God. It still had me at the end, you know, crying for Rengoku-san. Um, that movie is just the most perfect fucking thing. And even, you know, cut up in TV chunks where I didn't watch it all in one go, it worked on me 110%. It's just, it's two hours of fucking magic and I can't believe it exists. Um, true for the Pleasure District arc as well. This show is magic. Oh my God. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I haven't seen the Mugen Train arc movie as much as you, but this would be, I think in total the fourth time I've watched this like story arc because I think I've watched the movie about three times um only once in the theater uh but but yes I mean it's one of those things and it's true of like you know I said at the top of this podcast of, of that you know um I re-watched the second half of the Pleasure District arc just last night because fuck it why not is is that at this <laughs> point in Kimetsu Yaiba like the action and the characters and all that, it's so exciting and entertaining that you can just watch it on repeat forever. It's just like if Mugen Train was in the era where people watched just like live TV and you just like were channel surfing and Mugen Train came on, it would be a movie that no matter at any point 
of the day at any point you like flipped onto that movie you would watch it all the way to the end no matter what it's like has that quality of just like it's a perfectly entertaining story like put together like with expert craftsmanship um and yeah watching it in a tv format like it still preserves that quality completely even having watched the movie version multiple times All phenomenal stuff, you know, it's great. But, Sean, would you like to tell us why they made this decision to devote the first seven episodes to six recycled episodes from the movie so that we would have this back half of the season that is this new arc uh, that they maybe got a little more time for? Yeah, this is like, because we talked about this when the announcement came down that they were doing this, and we sort of like speculated a little bit about the reasoning of it. And I think watching the season two makes it very clear this is why they did this, is that they wanted to fill, broadly speaking, an, an, episode, like, an episode order for two cores, which is, it doesn't really fully fulfill, but it gets pretty close. You know, like it would be 24 episodes about would be what you'd want for a full two core slot. Um, but it fills up most of a two core slot. It's certainly more than one core. Um, but it's able to do that um, with having basically the entire like budget allocated for a two core run of an anime really just to make like one core. Right. So it's really about making about 12, 13 ish episodes. However, you combine like the runtime right? you put the extra episode at the beginning of Mugen Train in there. Um, you have about like 13 episodes of new animation, um, a bit more than that in terms of total runtime. Um, but you have the production of and like the production block of a two core series devoted for that. Um, and that's, I think, fucking genius. It's it's like the smart version of what Dragon Ball Super did. Dragon Ball Super did an incredibly stupid version of this where Dragon Ball Super for its first two arcs <laughs> took the, the broad stories of the movies Battle of Gods and Resurrection F but completely redid it. I mean, they did. They redid the animation. They redid the music. They redid the voice acting. They redid every single element of it. And made it all shittier. Like, yeah, infinitely it, fucking worse. <laughs> yes, yeah. And at least with the Battle of Gods version, they changed a lot of the story. So it's like, while it is way worse still, and at least, like, you could justify some of it as, like, well, they wanted to change a bunch of it and make the fight way longer and, like, do more stuff. The Resurrection F1 is completely unforgivable because they change precious little about it. Um, they just expand some sequences, but they don't really change anything. And so you just get a way worse version um, with worse music, worse animation, all that. And it's like the movies are a thousand times preferable to um, watching the TV versions of those two arcs from Dragon Ball Super. So if you want to watch Dragon Ball Super, you watch the two movies and then you pick up where those movies left off and you're fine. Because um, the TV show gets a lot better from there. Um but with Mugen Train or with Kimetsu no Yaiba, what they did was let's not redo all that incredible hard work we did on this movie. And instead, let's take that work. Let's prioritize it. Let's, you know, like add in a little stuff, do some work, obviously, to like re-edit things and build in your opening, your ending, your your uh, mid-credit bumpers, your um, your corner at the end. That's like your next on preview kind of stuff. You know, they, they did some refreshing of it. But there was not a huge amount of work that had to go into sprucing these episodes up for TV and making them fit the format. So the majority of that production time and budget and all that could just be spent on making the Pleasure District arc, which was very necessary because we have both read the manga, so we knew going into this that the Pleasure District arc 
is basically one gigantic fucking fight, right? Like the first half of the season is basically a buildup to the fight. And then the second half of the season is just one huge fight with a lot of inner like changing pieces and like weird, like, you know, it's very convoluted or not convoluted. It's like very complex in that you have multiple different parties fighting each other in the fight, moving from perspective to perspective in between two places and the scale of the fight, it like accelerates and gets more intense and intense. It is just like, if you want to maintain the quality that you had, or ideally improve on the quality, which is what they do, of season one of Kimetsu no Yaiba, which has a couple of big fights spread across the whole season, um, you you need to find a smart production way to deal with it for the Pleasure District arc, because you can't distribute that production load across a couple of big episodes and have some like sort of lighter, and most of them being lighter episodes, which is what the first season got to have. Here it's like, there are no small trivial fights. There's no little light episodes or whatever. Once the fight starts, every single episode basically has to be about the level of quality of episode 19 of season one of Kimetsu Yaiba, which was like the big fight with Rui and like the crazy, you know, spectacular climax. And that is exactly what they did. Like basically everything from episode six on from the episode six for the entertainment district arc, um, is is at that level like the animation is at that level the choreography is at that level the amount of production and thought is at the level of like the highest moments of season one and it's just that beat after beat after beat episode after episode after episode and the only feasible way you could have done that is to get um a significantly greater amount of production time dedicated to this section um, you know, not as much of a movie but a lot closer to the production time you'd have for a movie than if this had been 26 new episodes coming out over the course of half of a year you would not physically be able to do this with a TV show it would have been completely impossible and the result is and I know you have seen much more modern anime than I have but I'm no fucking slouch I've mm -hmm. seen my good share of anime in the day from a wide range of history these 11 episodes the Pleasure District arc of Kimetsu no Yaiba is the most impressive TV anime production I've ever seen Mm -hmm. um, it is, it, and it's the blend. It is the the music, which is movie quality for eleven episodes. The voice acting, which is a listers up and down doing top notch work, and then of course the animation and direction and storyboarding and how it all comes together and the overall vision. I, I have never seen anything like this on television. Usually, you would have to go to a movie for this. It's it's above even a good OVA. It's unfucking believable, and I just jaw on the floor watching. A I mean, the the fight is basically the last eight, and it is utterly fucking nuts. Yeah, no, it, it's. I think I would agree that this is the most well produced, like anime season uh, I've ever seen. Like it is, it is. I mean, one of the other ones that would have been up there. I'm a little bit older at this point would have been Yufa Table's Unlimited Blade Works uh, Fate Stay Night adaptation from like 2010 or 2012, 2013 or so, um, which is also very impressive. But um, this definitely steps that up. It steps up season one. And certainly like if you're looking for stuff that does like complex action, there's nothing that's even close to this. The only other stuff that's like kind of in this realm is stuff that doesn't do big action stuff. So it can kind of like spare it a little bit more stuff like Violet Evergarden a lot of like Kyoto animation stuff is sort of around this level of quality but it's not for big complex crazy 3D action sequences with big 3D camera movements and stuff like that um, that this 
just like it both has the huge amount of production value and it has this like the masterful like complexity to the sequences that are being animated that the combination of those make it feel like you're watching something that is on par with a movie like that is going for a long like a huge chunk of time and it's it is like very apparent because they did also put this right airing right next to the movie right so this all aired in one sequence like every episode one after the next so like the episode before the the premiere of the pleasure district arc is the finale of mugen train which means that you have to the ufo table had to stand up to that work right um and had to make it like look comparatively good next to the movie um which is like one of like maybe the negatives about this approach is that it is something that like you are setting yourself a very high bar to have to clear um and they totally fucking clear it you know it's not as good as the movie in like the small moments because there's no way it could be in terms of like character dialogue and stuff like that they they do their limited animation there because they have to but in terms of the big moments when the action really kicks off that's easily on par with the stuff from the movie and it's kind of fucking mind-blowing that they could do it if not better like yeah. i think there is the, the penultimate episode uh, episode 10 of this arc uh, defeating an upper rank or it's called never give up yeah. that i think is more impressive even than what's in the movie um the episode i forget which one it is i think it's layered memories episode mm-hmm. um uh, that episode um where uh, tanjiro basically starts awakening to this new form of the hinokami kagura um is also like it's like both of those I feel like surpass episode 19 which felt unsurpassable when it aired yeah. from, from season one um, just like and like you're comparing this to anime compare this Sean name a Hollywood movie <laughs> that is as impressive as this since Lord of the Rings I can't do it like and those are big movies with hundreds of millions of dollars nope I'm sorry like Dune looked really cool was very nice no has absolutely nothing on the pleasure district arc of demon slayer you know yeah i mean like and in part is it's, you know we have to talk about this element as well because we've both read the manga is that this is the point in the manga where it starts getting incredibly good like this is where yes. gotoge sensei the, the mangaka for kimetsu yaiba like really kicks their game up um and and so this arc is just an incredible page turner in the manga. Like every single page is just like, what the fuck's gonna happen next? And like once that fight starts, there's so much so much creative choreography and ideas and the way that you're kind of moving between these two parallel battles um, once the fight really kicks off, kind of mostly from Tanjiro's perspective and the way that that interplays. And it's just like, there's a lot of very complex interconnected sequences in the way that the, all the action is choreographed. Um, that th- there's a lot of good action previously in the manga, but there was nothing at like the level of like what the Pleasure District Arc does is incredible, hugely impressive. And so Yufo Table already made the action in the sort of earlier pieces of Kimetsu no Yaiba really fucking good, way better than it, it really could have been executed in the manga, particularly the final fight of Mugen Train, which is kind of half not there in the manga. That's almost an invention for the movie about half that fight. Um, but then being able to bring all of that expertise to this stuff from the manga, where the manga is like meeting UFO table basically all the way in terms of the level of quality it's outputting, like that's part of I think what makes this whole thing so impressive. Um, 
and, and what makes it rival or like exceed other projects that are way more like budget and way more high profile like Hollywood movies and like Disney animated stuff or anything like that is that it is both the source material at this point is truly really exceptional and UFO Table is the best in the business at doing this kind of stuff. And now they're adapting like material that is fucking amazing and was like rivals like some of the best action shown in stuff in any other series at this point in Kimetsu Yaiba the manga. Um, so the combination of those two things is the thing that gives the Pleasure District arc in the anime this just truly virtuosic quality to it in terms of the the fighting in particular that just completely outpaces anything else I've ever seen in a TV anime. Yeah, 100%. I agree with all of that. I was tweeting out some thoughts basically in that vein last night because it's not that the manga is bad or anything before this point. It's brilliant in a lot of ways. But I think the clear point where Gotoge is still figuring their sort of craft out in the early run of the manga is the action stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think mostly UFO Table is expanding upon and improving what's in the manga. And I, I remember distinctly getting past, like, reading the Mugen Train arc and feeling like, oh, the movie really did this better. Because it's, it's good on the page, but it's a phenomenal all-time great movie in the, in the theater, you know? And then the Pleasure District arc is when it starts to go, oh, I guess I just have to read 20 chapters of this today. Yes. Because I can't possibly put it down. It's so good and brilliant. And, I'm, and now it's starting to produce images and ideas where even after seeing the movie, I'm wondering how UFO Table is going to pull it off because it's such a big task that Gotoge is, is setting them in the manga. And you do see them pull it off. And it is this level of virtuosity that I feel like I can count on one or two hands the number of times I've been watching a movie or TV show and felt as invigorated, oh, yeah. edge of my seat fist pumping yelling at the tv as i was watching these episodes of the new season it's just a kind of utterly unique experience that comes along once in a generation of oh my god i, I can't believe what i'm seeing that penultimate episode called never give up where they they make the final push against the demons I must have sounded like I was recording a YouTube reaction video because I was like yelling at the TV like, oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. Like just every five seconds, because like, how can you not verbalize based on what it is sending you? It is it's it's like I, I texted you. I very rarely text you yes. while I'm watching stuff. And I was like, Sean, I can't believe this is real. Like it was almost like I had to like reach out to you and be like. Is this just some weird hallucination I'm having, Sean? Did I take drugs and I don't know it? Like, tell me this is real. And it's real, all right. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is that thing of where even having read the manga, you completely forget that forget. you know yeah, totally. everything that's going to happen in the fight already. Like, it's so... And, 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 and again, I imagine that would happen if I reread that section of the manga also, just because it's like, again, the, the construction of it is so delicate and so good at building expectations and pulling the rug out from under you at the perfect moment and the way that the fight escalates. I mean, it's so crazy. It's the, like I was going to say, it's the biggest, most ridiculous thing ever. But then, of course, like Kimiso Yaiba will continue to escalate this. And I have no idea what the fuck they're going to do. Any of the stuff at the end of this series is just like crazy. That entire last arc which is massive I'm, I'm very curious how they approach it but like like it's so immaculately constructed that upon re-experiencing it or experiencing it in, in the anime 
all the thoughts I have of like, oh, I know that Inosuke doesn't die because I have already read the manga. It's completely gone. Like when he gets fucking stabbed um, yes. by Gyutado, I'm like, oh my God. It, it, it was like this moment of sheer shock. And then like searching my memory, it's like, wait, does Inosuke die? Inosuke doesn't die this way? He doesn't, and, 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 like as they crash, I'm like, no, he definitely doesn't die because he's in the rest of the fucking series. But it is that thing where it so convinces you Partially because, um, you know, this is a good thing of this is like a smart thing they did with the anime of, of a dad, like putting the Mugen Train into the TV version also, is that this is so set up by the Mugen Train arc, like in the manga in particular, it's clear that these are like sister arcs. They're like meant to be juxtaposed yes. with each other um, because there are so many references to Rengoku and things like that that happens over the course of the Pleasure District arc. Um, so putting the the TV version doing the same thing is very smart. Um, because you are so set up to understand that death is totally on the table at this point, because we have had a massive, surprising character death where Rengoku never felt like a character that was going to die. That's one of the shocking things about it, is that he feels like a character that's going to be Tandra's next big mentor that is like the very standard shonen anime thing of you start with your one mentor, your Udokodaki-san, um, and then eventually about halfway through or whatever, a third of the way through the series, the protagonist meets a second mentor um, that takes them that extra step forward, right? Your Jiraiya in Naruto, like Goku has like a thousand of these. He's more than just two, but you know, you start. With well, but Jiraiya. in original, like the manga, it would be Master Roshi and then Kaiosama. Like yes. those are the two. And obviously now he's had seven more in the various spinoffs and things, but that's definitely the original run. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very standard kind of thing of having the sort of starting mentor and then the like sort of second big mentor that takes him that step forward. And that's what Rengoku set up to be. He's like, I'm going to make you my Tsuguko. You're going to be, you know, I'm going to teach you like about like the flame breathing or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And then that rug is pulled out from under you. And so you're set up to feel anything can happen. And obviously, you know that Tandra is not going to get killed because he's the main character that's more of the series. But everyone other than Tandra and probably Nezuko completely on the table. Anyone could die. Um, so you're coming into this arc setting up to be like, when Inosuke gets stabbed through the chest, you have no idea whether or not that's it for him. When you see Tengen collapse on the ground with his arm cut off after he's been poisoned, you're like, that could be it. He could be either he's dead or he's good. He's like going to die. He gets up miraculously and then dies at the very end. And you have no idea. Um, and that's one of those things that creates so much suspension. And it's so perfectly told as a story that no matter how much you know about it and how familiar you are with the material, the suspension works on you so much that you forget all of that and you're constantly surprised and you're constantly delighted and you're constantly scared of what's happening because it is such an exciting piece of material. It's like a really, really great production of Hamlet or Romeo yes. and Juliet yes. where maybe you find yourself going, this time Romeo oh. and Juliet are going to get together, those crazy kids, and they're not going to die. And then it feels even worse when it actually happens, you know. Um, any of those like stories that tell a tragedy really well. Um, ultimately, the Pleasure District arc is not a tragedy because they win, but it is, they are sister arcs because it's this phenomenal juxtaposition of you find out how high the hill to climb to beat an upper-ranked demon is in yeah. that Mugen Train arc. And I think it is fair to... We've both read the manga. What Ren Goku achieves is the most impressive thing <laughs> yes. any individual does in the entire manga, standing up to Akaza and fighting him long enough and almost killing him, but long enough to save everyone. No other person in the manga... I don't think this is a spoiler... Solo does that well. Every other victory in the manga is a team effort from this point on for good reason, right? Yes, um, yeah. 
So Rengoku is the most impressive person in the entire manga. He's gone now, yep. right? So now we have to defeat an upper rank demon and we know what it looks like to lose. And so that, then this is the thing that I think separates Kimetsu from any other shonen manga is the victories feel well earned in a way I've never seen before. Yeah. They, every single time, and it continues for the rest of the manga, every hill starts out seeming completely fucking impossible. And if they do manage to climb it, it's by such the skin of their teeth that it feels like you've run a marathon just reading the manga or now watching the episodes. And this season really captures that feeling in that when they pull it off, because what they pull off in the Pleasure District arc is something that in the lore of the series has not happened in over a century and all this stuff. This is what starts to turn the tide as, as the um, master says at the end of the season. And you really get the feeling of like them doing something im-fucking possible. And that is the manga gives you that feeling and the anime gives it to you in an anime you know, way. And it is such a cool fucking thing. Yeah, it's, it's the thing of, of where... You know, uh, I don't want to like repeat myself from the first Kimetsu Yaiba podcast, but it, like, it, but it bears like reiterating. I think what is the, what is like the, one of the main things that makes Kimetsu Yaiba so great. Um, and we talked about this that first season episode in the Mugen Train episode is that it's not that it is doing anything revolutionary or that is telling a shonen anime story that you have never seen before. It is one hundred percent aware of the tropes. It's playing with the tropes. It's playing into tropes um, and archetypes and stuff like that. And it's not trying to be a revolutionary story, but it is just trying to take all those ideas, the themes, the style, the action, and all the stuff that makes shonen manga and anime as exciting and interesting as it is, and just execute it on a very high, very focused, like kind of condensed level, rather than having this crazy sprawling story that goes on for a hundred plus volumes with 5,000 major characters and so many like twists and turns that you can't possibly recall all of them where, you know, you have forgotten half of the fucking series by the time you end it because it's gone on for so long, right? It's, it's not doing something like that. It's this pretty concise, straightforward, like 26 volume thing. It just goes for it. Um, and it is taking all of those ideas about like friendship and family and effort and hard work which are the core themes of any like good shonen thing and approaching it with this like freshness and this earnestness um and this deliberateness that makes that feel powerful again in a way that it usually feels so kind of secondhand and wrote in most other series even series that i like a lot like you know i feel bad for my hero academia that it had to get its entire spotlight stolen by kimetsu yaiba because my hero <laughs> academia is a totally fun show it's like it's good it's not amazing but it's good and then kimetsu yaiba is over here in this like this is the real fucking deal this is like taking the shonen manga thing and just like distilling it to its most purest form and injecting it into your veins because it is giving you all of that with none of the bullshit, none of like the weird, you know, arcs that are very forgettable, none of like the random characters that you don't really know why they exist, none of the th fights that are just there to fill time, um, and none of these sort of like paying lip service to themes and ideas and characterization instead of like legitimately engaging with them. Kimetsu Yaiba does away with all the worst tendencies that this genre can kind of have and gives it to you for like. And, it, and it's like the real deal. And that's kind of what I thought about constantly watching the season was like, this is the real fucking deal, man. This is, it, you don't have to suffer through a bunch of random bullshit to get to the Pleasure District arc and to get to the big character moments and the big changes in the big fights. You just get those moments without them being distilled through or without them being sort of diluted 
um, with a thousand meandering subplots and stuff like that that is so typical of anything coming from, you know, what is a like weekly published thing, which is usually where a lot of those storytelling kind of pitfalls come from. And, and Kimetsu Yaiba avoids every single one of them. So every fight feels super important. Every moment in every fight feels incredibly valuable. And, and that's one of the things that makes the action so engaging is that all of it is important and all of it matters. And it's all heading towards a clear overall goal that isn't fucking 50 years down the line. It's, you know, it's like in the anime, like three to four years probably. And they'll, they'll, they'll probably be done with Kimetsu Yaiba. And it's like exciting to know that you don't have to wait for anything of like the real shit to start. You're in it. And it's like, you're heading towards a real climax. I think that's also true. And, you know, the thing that I think Kimetsu in particular, and I was mentioning this earlier, but that I think does better than any other shonen anime I've seen is this idea. And it's there in every shonen you've ever seen of, you know, the mountain in front of you that seems impossible that you train hard and then you overcome. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you get a lot of friends and you overcome. And I think prior to Kimetsu, I've always thought the best version of this that I think I've ever seen is the, just the Saiyan arc from Dragon Ball. Uh -huh. Of how that that is such a perfectly paced arc to start with Goku dying and learning he's an alien and all of this stuff. And like completely blowing off the barrier of what the power level, like the barrier of power in this world seemed to be before that point, right? Yeah. And then Goku goes to this other world. He gets a new master. He learns all of this stuff. But then he's on his way back and all of his friends are fighting this, this one guy who isn't even the main villain. And he kills all of them except, you know, Gohan and Krillin. And then Goku arrives and even then, he's not good enough to beat Vegeta, and it takes this team effort, and they barely do it, and Vegeta flies off at the end. And, like, really making you feel the struggle up that mountain, Kimetsu does that in every arc. Like, yes. that's, it does it that good, and I can say it right now, it does it better and better and better uh -huh. to the end of the manga, because we've both read it. Um, there is stuff that's going to make the Pleasure District arc look fucking quaint. Yeah. Um, which, if you've just watched the anime, you're probably going, what the fuck do you mean, look quaint? You'll see. Um, Ufo Table are very talented at what they do, and I'm sure it will be will work out. But like, and I think it's, you know, part of it is just the extremity that Gotoge, you know, pushes things where like, you know, Tanjiro does the final blow in this arc with a fucking spear through yeah. his jaw, his eyes bleeding. You know, he's got help from Tengen who's missing an arm and his head is just covered in blades, missing an eye, all of this stuff. But I think the other side of it is that, and this is where I think UFO Table enhances it beyond what the manga even can do, is what you're looking at feels impossible. Yes. Every time Tanjiro or one of the others, Zenitsu, Inosuke, every time one of them blows through a barrier, or on the other hand, every time one of the demons introduces something that you previously thought was impossible, UFO Table always animates it in a way that feels like a violation of anime codes uh -huh. in the right way. Yes. And this is where their integration of 3D is so important. And I think in the Pleasure District arc, more impressive than anywhere else that they've done it, is like, you know, the two demons in this season, Gutaro and Daki, both of their like special moves are 3D elements. Yeah. It's the... It's the big obi that she has that is sending, you know, lines everywhere. And for Gutaro, it's his, like, spears and his, his blood art that go around everywhere. Or his sickles, I should say. They're yeah. sickles. Um, and so when they are doing those things, they are breaking the conventional rules of anime space. We talked about this a lot in the season one episode of how there's sort of your... And this is, this is something I take from, like, animation theory. Um, but, like, there's your sort of conventional 2D anime space that is on a plane... 
and is not about you know movement into depth but between layers and and left to right and that sort of stuff and kimetsu knows those rules and plays by them well until the moment comes to just break the lid off something and then it is that obi is moving around you in a way it doesn't feel like it should be able to it's breaking the rules of this world and when tanjiro masters this part of the hinokami kagura he is suddenly moving in a way that feels like he is breaking the rules of the world that's what episode 19 does so fucking well um and even add stuff over the manga like him pushing rui back over and over again again like breaking the rules of the world and so when those big things happens part of what feels so invigorating and part of what gives me that quality of like, Sean, is is this real uh-huh. what I'm watching right now? Is the, it doesn't feel like it should be. And I think UFO Table is really deeply aware of the differences of 2D and 3D animation and how they have different rules. And so when you put them together, you can't just do it haphazardly. That creates those moments like... Uh, the Dragon Ball Battle of Gods movie is great, but there's a couple of moments where there's random CGI insertions that you feel like that's off, that doesn't look right because it's like kind of breaking the rules of space, but in a haphazard way. You never get that in Kimetsu. It's always, this is for a particular impact and you feel that impact really deeply. And that's where they are the industry leaders right now. Yeah, because it is the thing that you can see that influence, like it is spread to like so many other studios and so many other projects that do um, stuff like this. I think, like, probably my other favorite one that is a non-UFO table project is the Gundam Hathaway movie that does a lot of this kind of stuff in just incredible fashion in for a mecha uh, kind of genre thing. Uh, but the yeah. Dragon Ball Super Broly movie, like, you yes. can see the difference between Battle of Gods and then Broly. When they go 3D in Broly, it's for a fucking reason and you feel it, right? Yeah, because everything you're saying about that with, with uh, Demon Slayer is also very much they cut their teeth on that with their Fate franchise stuff. That also has like a certain kind of character called a servant that is like basically a mythological figure summoned into the modern world. That when they start doing shit, it's like, oh, this is on a different scale. Like this is, they exist on like a different plane. This is some supernatural bullshit. And yes, and then those moments the like the cinematic nature of what you are watching like fundamentally changes and that contrast um feels integrated thematically and narratively into the rest of the piece rather than it being a like convenience for production which is what it oftentimes feels like in other stuff that um historically has integrated 3d cg into 2d animation poorly is it feels like oh this happened because you just couldn't do it otherwise but not because you had like a a good idea for how to do it um whereas ufa table it always feels like oh you really thought carefully about how this transition would happen why the transition is happening what it means and what it says about everything around it um and for this season in particular i think the one that i love the most and i think it's where ufa table just gets to have the most fun is the obi for Doki. like they just go completely to town on that shit and it is (laughs) the most wonderful stuff um because if there's one thing about mugen train that i i think could be improved like i think the only thing that looks a little bit awkward to me is sometimes like the gooey fleshy stuff in some of the cg shots looks a little bit weird because it's very flat depending on the lighting of the scene um, and that's something that the Obi looks so good because it has like a real texture to it. And it's oftentimes hard to tell in certain cuts whether it's a CG element or a 2D element or like a combination of both because it, it's just like a, a production sense. It's hard to even know what exactly they're doing because it often is moving in a way that feels like it is breaking the laws of 2D animation. But it looks like such a 2D element with like a 2D texture on it or whatever that it blends so naturally in with everything else that... 
I think the Obi is probably like the thing to me from a like a animation point of view that is the most impressive thing about the season because I just never really know how what they're doing to make it work. Um, and I feel like it's probably different solutions for different kinds of shots and scenes. Um, and it always looks so cool and it just does it's such a necessary element for so much of the action and it's always one of the coolest things um, in any given action sequence. It's it really is like the Ur Ufo table like element, right? Yeah. Because it is this thing that is in a lot of shots, just as a stat like before you before Daki goes to town, right? Yeah. Like she just she has it as part of her dress, and it's just a normal drawn, you know, hand drawn 2D element, right? And then when it comes alive, I, I'm pretty sure what they've probably what they probably did is took like an actual, you know, drawing of the texture for the Obi scan that in and then apply it to the 3d plane that they've created you know um but what that does is it takes that in that you know hand-drawn animation element and completely frees it from the boundaries of space and now it is moving with 3d animation but it can go between those very easily because the ob is a really simple thing at its core it's just a belt that you've drawn a nice pattern on, right? You've seen that in a million anime. You've seen it in a million live action movies. It's a very simple thing to do, but then it comes alive in a way nothing should be able to come alive. And it's striking and it's, you know, it's unnerving and it's crazy and cool. And, and they build so many sequences around it. I mean, the scene where Inosuke makes his, you know, hero run uh-huh. down the building while Tanjiro and, and Zenitsu are holding off the Obi and Zenitsu is just going for her. Unbelievable. And it's only surpassed by Zenitsu then doing his lightning move to cut it at the end of the season. Like, oh my God, it's so fucking cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's just throughout everything, the action, the animation, all of it is it's that thing where you constantly, as you said, it's like, I just don't understand how they did it. I just don't understand, like, how how did you, like, on a production level, this must be just, like, one of the most impressive TV anime ever. Like, I would love to just get a documentary on this, like, just behind the scenes, like, interviews with some of the animators that worked on some of these cuts, because stuff is just, like, it's it's pretty fucking mind-blowing. It it really is. And, and you know, you've talked before about one of the ways you table is different is is how closely the 3D team mm-hmm. and the 2D team work together. And it feels like that. It feels like this could only happen if a 2D animator could turn to a 3D animator and talk about this, right? Yeah. Like just in the room or however they had to do it remotely. I'm you know sure they maintained some of that same sense of space um, and just be like, you know, how are we going to do this OB together? Because there's it's not one team doing that. It yeah. is a clear collaboration. And that's true of all the big elements here. Um, throughout the season, and it is so virtuosic. And again, Gotoge gives them the craziest number of character beats to do. Because I think the thing that really is the breakthrough of the Pleasure District arc in her, in the manga is not just like the sheer like complications of the choreography and the stages of the battle, but it's also how much of it is character motivated yes. and how good they get at this point of. It's not action scenes versus character scenes. It's all in one pool. Like Tanjiro is, and again, this is that shonen anime thing done exceptionally well, is that he is growing and changing as a person during these fights. They are forcing him to learn things about himself and the world. And so, you know, that, the, the like first half of the fight is him versus Daki before we know all of the complications that are going to come. And it feels fucking impossible. And he keeps getting beaten down. And the Hinokami Kagura is breaking his body and all of this stuff. 
And then we get the the part where Nezuko comes out and becomes a full-fledged, you know, crazy demon and is regenerating her limbs. And that's that's the first part of the fight, you know? And then you get all of the... That's not even the crazy part, relatively speaking. That's where this this whole arc and this, you know, season of anime just feels unreal. Yeah, 100%. So I think we should, we should, we should like, start going through some of, like, the story stuff. Because we talked about yes. a lot of the animation and the action and stuff. But, but there is, like, a whole kind of first half of the season uh, or of the arc also that is, like, all the setup kind of stuff that, that I do want to, like, make sure we, we focus in on as well. I just want to talk about that first episode because, yeah. again, I, I, I don't know how standard this is to do a double-length episode of anime in Japan. Very I certainly rare. have not seen I, it. Yeah, I've seen it a couple of times, but it's an exceptionally rare thing. It's way rarer in anime than it is in, like, you know, for, like, American live-action TV. It's it's a relatively common thing to have, like, your Caesar series premiere be like, this is a special hour-long episode or whatever, particularly the streaming. Right. We do that all the time, but only a couple of times can I think of an anime like ReZero did that, but there's... Very few. And again, you it's not that you couldn't cut this in half, but it's that having it all in one place, because this set of chapters in the manga is, you know, recovering from what happened at the end of the Mugen Train arc, literally, like physically, and then Tanjiro going and talking to Rengoku's family, which is a phenomenal series of scenes. And you have the setup for the Pleasure District arc where we meet Tengen Uzui properly here and he's trying to kidnap the kids and then they all fight him. And it is so much more powerful to have that all in one place as a contiguous hour of television than it would be divided up. This is a phenomenal premiere and like is such a such a good job of like bringing you off of Mugen Train and back into the steam of things. I think if you had to split this in half, it would feel like a much more awkward transition coming out of the movie yeah. into season two. But because they're able to do it all in one hour, by the time you actually get to the Pleasure District in, in, in the second episode, you're ready for it because you've had this full hour to process the movie, basically. Yeah, it's it is. I'm wondering with you that it's a, such a smart choice because because basically what happened was you know in order to give the Mugen Train movie the ending that they wanted, it was the right choice to end where they did. It meant that there's like a really solid chunk of the end of that volume in that arc in the manga, which is all the stuff of of, of Tanjiro going and visiting the family and relaying Rengoku's dying words. Um, that has went unadapted in the the animes, and I was very curious how they would deal with that because it is like a weird thing to kind of start a season with. Um, it's one of the things that doing the redoing the the movie story in, in TV form kind of helps smooth that over a little bit too. Um, but yeah, the idea of let's have kind of the first half of the episode be dealing with the fallout and like addressing like the stuff we didn't adapt yet from the Mugen Train arc in the manga, and then making sure that your series season premiere ends where the season premiere should end. Like it's very clear that it needs to end with them starting to go to Yoshiwara, the, the pleasure district, because like, that's the, that's like, you know, where the action starts. That's, that's all the setup. And that's where it's like, okay, now we're off for the adventure. And it's exactly what you want to be the end of your first episode of the season. Um, and so the, the idea of let's sort of combine that together 
make a double length episode and then it also gives them a little extra time to expand on some stuff because there's like a couple of extra scenes sort of in the middle of the episode that don't exist in the manga that just show a little bit of like Tanjiro and, and Zenitsu and Inosuke just doing their daily lives as like demon slayers for the couple of months between the arcs and there's a cool little action scene where Tanjiro and Nezuko fight another demon or whatever um like and they, they go to like that stable and the kid runs out and says like I thought I saw something and Tanjiro and Nezuko have like run off and disappeared like the, there's a nice sense of sort of time and space that exists over the course of this premiere um that I think this choice just sort of gives it all this room to breathe and let you kind of move on a little bit from the like Rengoku-san, no, oh god, why? Which is still what you're feeling, because if you're like <laughs> me, you just had watched the end of the, the Big Train TV version right before going into this episode, or it was a week ago, if you're watching it live in Japan, or watching it simulcast, and so you like have to let go of some of those feelings of Rengoku-san, I can't believe it, oh my god, I'm crying already again, um, and just like humming Homura to yourself and weeping quietly. Um, <laughs> and then you get to have like all the fun stuff, and little action, and, and Tengen pop in, and Tengen is a very well, fun character. It, it lets you kind of, with the characters, feel those emotions, push through them, and get ready for a new adventure. It's a really cool episode because it gives you a little bit of everything Kimetsu does well. Yes. You get a fun little action sequence, when, um, which is hinted at in the manga, but they flesh it out for a full scene here, where you have a, a nice full little demon fight of one of the normal missions that Tanjiro is sent on. You have a little bit of the fun training stuff at the at Shinobu's house. You, uh, What is her name? Is that right? Yeah, Shinobu? yeah. It's the Butterfly yeah. Mansion. Yeah, Shinobu. Butterfly Mansion, yeah. So you have a little bit of that. You have just fun interactions with your sort of, you know, three main leads and they're very funny you have a lot of very heartfelt you know just heart piercing stuff with Rengoku's family which is really kind of brutally sad and also sort of hopeful because you see how good Tanjiro is he gets to make that friendship with Rengoku's brother which is something I really love in the manga yeah. and um, was really happy to see here like I was there were a couple of lines in that scene I was so excited to see Hanai Natsuki voice and uh -huh. he does a great job with it obviously um, my favorite being when he says you know if anyone if anyone tells you no I'll headbutt them for you yes and then he says you don't have to Mr. Tanjiro <laughs> and it's so funny um, like, please don't do that <laughs> that doesn't sound yeah. like a good idea yeah, I was so happy to see that scene done. And then at the end of it, you meet a super cool Hashira, the flashiest of all the Hashira, yes. and uh, just a riotously funny sequence between them and Zenitsu and Inosuke and Tanjiro, just this great character beat, and then set up for the, the arc. So, like, as a season premiere, it reminds you of the full scope of what you love about this thing heading into this new adventure. You can't ask for more than that. Yeah, it's fantastic. One, one sequence I want to zoom in on a little bit because I think there's a little bit of like interesting language stuff that I was curious to see if the like English translation would try to address it at all and I don't know how you would and they don't really is that there is a little bit of like an unresolved piece that if you're only doing the English language version probably doesn't fully make sense from the end of season one which is all the stuff around the Hinokoku or like the sun breathing technique because if you remember at the end of season one Tanjiro has a little scene with Shinobu where he asks her about the Hinokami Kagura and asks her if there's such a thing as fire breathing, which is he no kokyu in Japanese. And she says, no, there isn't. There's hono no kokyu, which they translate as flame breathing. And for whatever reason, they're very particular that it's called that, which is weird because you would, in Japanese, you would normally just call it he no kokyu. Like that would be the standard way you'd think of it. And it's kind of weird to go the extra step to pick this kind of synonym word for it. 
Um, because if you know, if you have like a breathe fire breathing dragon, you'd use the frame flame the term Hinokoki to refer to like that, that kind of thing. Um, and so you have this weird mystery of why is this this like particular avoidance of using this more common term, and they pick this weird term for what flame breathing is that Rengoku uses. And the scene with Rengoku's father, Mr. Rengoku, because they're both named Rengoku, um, <laughs> uh, reveals what that is. And it's sort of like a quiet pun that also ties into the Hinokami Kagura stuff, which is what Tanjiro assumed was like Hinokoku, he being the character for fire, is actually Hinokoku, he being a character for sun. Um, and so it's what they call the sun breathing technique. Um, and that's why they don't refer to it because sun breathing is as we find out in the season it's the first breathing technique um and that all the other breathing techniques are spin-offs or offshoots of the sun breathing and so of course you wouldn't want to call it a spin-off of hinokoku also hinokoku so they picked a slightly more esoteric term for it um and that's i think that that's like a fun little bit of like linguistic stuff that when i read that in the manga it was like a oh that's really fun and that's really clever and there's another part of that also, though, is that it also ties into there's like a pun with Hinokami Kagura because it's the same thing. Hinokami Kagura normally you would think would be read and mean like dance of the fire god because Kagura means dance. Hinokami would mean fire god, but it's always written as katakana in Japanese. So it doesn't use kanji. So you don't know what the kanji are. So you don't know what the specific meaning is. Um, and I suspect the reason why it's written in katakana both is that it's slightly easier to read because you'd have the kanji of God would appear twice because it's at the beginning of Kagura at the end of Kami. Um, so it would be a little bit awkward looking, but also it allows this ambiguity of you think it would mean dance of the fire God because that's a much more common expression because he as a reading for the character for sun is a little bit weird and a little bit kind of like archaic, uh, but it actually means dance of the sun God, he no Kami Kagura. Um, and, and so all that, the, all the symbology of the series of it's always goes back to the sun, right? The only read the way that you can kill demons is with the sun. Even the swords they have, the Nichirinto are swords that are made by absorbing sunlight on this is a special ore. Um, and then symbolically, you know, Tanjiro's sort of soul core is the sun in his sort of interior world. All of that like symbology of using the sun all wraps in together linguistically here in Japanese in a way that's just like non-translatable. I think is very interesting. Yeah, it, totally. And and I will say the the Viz translation of the manga, um, which is how I read the manga in English through the Viz translation, it gets a little more of that across. Um, the subtitles in season two that are on Crunchyroll are weird. Yeah, they're they basically took every proper noun for this season, put them in a hat drew half of them out and translated those and the rest of them they left untranslated. So there's a lot of stuff that if you had no idea, I imagine would be very confusing. They get that scene you're talking about across decently, but they, they still do stuff like Hinokami is Hinokami no matter what. And then they say sun breathing and that's sun breathing. It's, you know, there's stuff like that that they just don't even attempt and it's very weird. Yeah, there's there, there and it's always been this case where there's like an inconsistency with the anime subtitles on like, what is what proper nouns do and don't get translated feels like very as you say i think it's just like feels inconsistent like one this this is a like a a bit of a nitpick but it's something that personally i would have translated because i think it's it's significant um is is i've always i've never liked that they they leave hashida as hashida or they don't do anything with it because hashida means pillar 
Um, and so it's like the idea of like the Hashira, it's not a ranking technically really, because you have like whatever their 12 ranks are, um, which comes up for like one of the only times of the whole series in this season. It's a thing that like, yes. is one of those like ephemeral things that sort of like felt like it was going to be important. And they're like, it's Naruto did the exact same thing. It's like, oh, we have all these rankings and eventually they will rise up through the rankings. It's like, no, you don't like it's because at a certain point that story is too important and you don't need to do all that fiddly shit. It would be annoying if you had a bunch of story arcs about like, and then we did the test and then we came went one rank up. Um, but Hashida just means you are the pillar of this part of the Demon Slayer core. So you're the fire pillar, you're the sound pillar, you're the bug pillar, whatever that Shinobu is on the water pillar. Like, so they're the pillars that support the structure of the Demon Slayer core. Um, and that's always the thing that like I kind of wish was translated um, just because I think it, it, it because it because it's something that means something it's not just a proper noun there's a bunch of those though like I mean my favorite one in this whole show is that Mugen Train is always Mugen Train for some yeah. fucking reason even it should be like they even do the stupid thing where throughout the arc and this was in the movie and it's in the show too every time you see the front of the train with the kanji for Mugen they put up the word Mugen and it's like huh. Tell them what that means, you idiots. Yeah. Like, it's infinity, and it's important, because that word comes up a lot in the series, and I know that, because Muzan Kibutsuji's castle is is Mugenjo, the Infinity Castle, which they translate this season as Infinity Castle, and I'm pulling my hair out, and I'm like, why do you translate Mugen sometimes and not other times? It's very confusing. Is it because you, wanted, you didn't want to have two arcs called Infinity something, so one will be Mugen and one will be Infinity, and you hope Americans won't notice? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. I just more consistency would just be appreciated. I think with the my favorite one bridge. this season though is in the premiere. Yes, there's a moment where Tanjiro, yeah, where he looks at where he looks at Tengen taking the girls and he he calls him a pervert. He says hentai, and they just left it as hentai. Yeah, which if you don't know any Japanese, I assume your only association of the word hentai is the weird porn category. Which so, all, which isn't even like because in Japanese you wouldn't refer to erotic animation erotic manga as hentai is like that's not technical. no you just call it basically translated erotic manga into Japanese yeah like that is that was the most head scratching head scratching subtitle I've seen in anything for a very long time I have no idea <laughs> why like why would you leave hentai untranslated it is utterly bizarre like there's i just can't see any reason for it whatsoever it's not like there was a pun being made using the word hentai it was a totally standard usage of the word in japanese to refer to someone who is like perverse um and they just decided not to translate it like there's not much stuff that is specifically like that that is by far the most egregious translation of the subtitles um, that's like an old fan sub thing where like yeah. someone would put hentai and then have an asterisk in the corner of the screen going, we just can't think of a better English word for this. So we're going to leave it, you know, like all the, the fan subs that just use the leave the word Nakama alone. Yes. You know? Yeah. Nakama is the, the classic one as if it means some something so deep in, in the specific and personal in Japanese that it couldn't be translated as like comrade, um, which it right. <laughs> can just be translated as comrade. But yeah. In fact, it's an important word to translate because it means very different things depending on the situation. Exactly. Like yeah. in in One Piece, sometimes Luffy means friend. Sometimes he means his crew member who works for him on the ship. Yes. You really do want to distinguish those. And One Piece in the manga and subtitles does a good job with that. Um, if you just left it as Nakama, it'd be weird. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, episode one. It's great. Do you want to talk about our boy Tengen Uzui for a moment here? Who yes. is introduced in the flashiest way. Yes, our 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 flashy flashy Mister uh, Tengen, who is a fucking ninja 
which is cool as shit. Like, I love that, like, it just, like, the the, the core concept of the character um, in that very, like, shonen anime manga kind of thing of where you have, like, here's, like, this, like, one sentence you can use to describe the character that just makes him stand out, which is, this guy is a ninja who wants to be the most, like, flashy, obnoxious person possible. Um, in that, like, <laughs> contrast or, like, what you call a gap in sort of, like, otaku character sort of, like, narrative construction is, like, there's this gap between what you expect and what the character actually is. And that is, I think, a particularly amusing one is that he's he's a ninja, he's super stealthy, and he's very good at being a ninja. You know, he's able to cut off Daki's head, like, completely unnoticed. Um, but also his, he's obsessed with being like very loud and very obvious, um, and doing things in the most like ex extravagant way possible. Um, and I think that, that like core character concept is very fun. It, it is so fun. He is, I mean, all of the Hashira in the series, if you haven't read the full manga, every single one is great. There's, yes. there's no Hashira who is not a fun, awesome, interesting, deep character. Uh, and Tengen is to me, one of the most memorable just because, you know, it's it coming right off of Rengoku. He's a really good, like, I think, contrast in yeah. that. I think they have, they probably are very similar in, I think, how they sort of view their role in the world, but they are very, very different on the surface. Rengoku is flashy, but I don't think because he's trying to be. He just is a very, uh -huh. you know, big personality. And I love, and of course, you find out over the course of the season where this all comes from for him. And he's such a cool character. He's got three wives, as he likes to remind us uh -huh. many times. He is a cool fucking dude with three wives. Uh, and I just love how he bounces off all of our main characters, because this is an arc where we have Tanjiro, uh, Inosuke, and Zenitsu all together for it. And of course, the way Tengen bounces off all three of them is very fun and funny. I love that like Zenitsu is jealous of him, and Inosuke is like in awe of of the god of festivals. Yes. <laughs> the Matsuri Kami. He is so... Because, of course, Inosuke doesn't get sarcasm or jokes, so he gets that. And, you know, Tanjiro wants to learn from him, and Tengen turns out to be a very good mentor over the course of the season. Um, but he's, he's a great character, and it was so fun in this season to, to hear the full vocal performance, to see the animation... All of that, I was salivating thinking about that, reading the manga, and it's great to get it here. Yeah, because he definitely and this is this is true of a lot of the Hashira, but the, he's got like a very uh, fittingly extravagant design, um, particularly like in the first half of the season. Before you know, once he gets like cut up and like a lot of his shit like that he's wearing gets like kind of destroyed, he I think imagine he becomes a little bit of an easier character to animate. In the first half of the season, he's got so many little like bits and bobs on his costume, particularly like this like they're not like earrings, but like the things like on the side of his head with like these like kind of jewel bands that drop down like a lot of that stuff is like very fiddly little bits of character design that I have to imagine is like hard and a bit tedious to animate but it feels like they really kind of approach that task with a lot of gusto because he's it's so necessary for his character that he's he is very extravagant in everything that he does and the way um that he looks and yes I love the way that he bounces off of characters in that I think a core dynamic of the character is that he has the same as all the Hashira do at his core, this incredible drive and willpower to protect people and to defeat demons. And it's like, it is the thing that drives him. Um, and that is where he's the same as Rengoku. So you get that great sequence at the midpoint of the season where, um, where Tengen basically says like, we're going to win. Like we're going to fight and we're going to win. And he stands there smiling and Tanjiro looks up at him and sees a vision of Rengoku seeing that's like, Oh, he is like, they are the same right at their core. And all the Hashira are like that. Um, no matter what they're on the outside, at their core, they have that, like, compassion that drives them to do this, like, incredible thing, which is to fight these demons. 
Um, but on the outside, Tengen is much more kind of a thorny character. He likes to like poke at people and like kind of throw barbs at them. Um, and he definitely is a little bit less like he I think he himself is a lot less confident and his sort of confidence is more of a put on because he seems like he's aware that he is not at the level of a Rengoku really you know like Rengoku was able to fight Akaza who is the upper third demon he's like other than not counting Muzan he's the third most powerful demon in existence and Rengoku was able to fight him um pretty evenly for a fair long bit of time they're fighting the like upper sixth demon so the weakest of the upper demons with help from three other demon slayers and then also some of Tenka's wives that come in and he like barely edges it through. So it's like he knows that he is not like the most powerful Hashida in existence, but he's able to put on all that confidence and like kind of like psych himself up for the fight. Um, and I think that seeing that like character dynamic and getting those little windows as it does in the manga where you kind of see little bits of his past and, and where he came from with his ninja, ninja village and all of that helps you get really invested into his like sort of growth as a character. It's so good. I love, this is one where I just loved having the vocal performance in the, in the final couple of episodes where he's been poisoned and he's just insisting, I'm not fine. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And of course it's obvious to literally everyone it's a put on, but that being a put on, if anything, makes it cooler to everyone because it's like he's pushing through it anyway. And it is just, he's the most badass guy. I fucking love him. And yeah, even if he's not quite on Rengoku's level, when he's going toe to toe with uh, with Gyutaro in those final episodes, good God, that's some cool shit. Yeah. His, my, one of my favorite moves in the entire manga is when he almost beheads him with his big long, he's got the two knives that are connected by the chain and he's holding the very tip of one yes. of them and the other one is going for the guy's, for Gutaro's neck. That is one of my favorite moves in the entire fucking series. Yeah, I love that there's a lot of, like, thinking through how his, like, sort of combat strategies work with him being, like, a ninja at his core. He's not a swordsman, so he he doesn't approach things directly the way that, like, Rengoku does or, like, Tanjiro and the other, like, swordsmen, like, really kind of are, like, point me in the direction I'll go and, like, do a bunch of cool moves and stuff, but it's a very direct thing, whereas, uh, you know, Tengen is using more, like, subterfuge and stuff like that, and yes, I'm with you. That is my favorite thing, and that's, like... Since that happens right at the beginning of his part of the fight, I think is the thing that sets you up for like, this is the kind of guy that Tengen is, is he goes for one kind of attack, but really like he's like sneakily setting up this like surprising like extension of the attack by letting go of the weapon, grabbing onto the very end of it and swinging it all the way around. Um, Very creative. Like, I don't think I've ever seen um that specific move in anything else. And it's a really cool idea. And, and then Gutata's like commentary on it was just like, what the fuck? Like, what kind of grip strength does this guy have to have, basically, like, to be able to do this? Because he's holding onto the very tip of this little knife, and you see, like, the veins and all the shit popping out of his arm of, like, how hard he has to be holding onto this thing to swing it like that. It's so good. It's so good. And I love, you know, this is a thing, theme throughout the rest of the series, is Tanjiro picking up things from the different Hashira he learns from. Uh So Tanjiro's move in the in the eleventh or in the penultimate episode, when he throws all the stuff, but really he's throwing the the, the throwing knife. star, yeah. the knife, so he can poison Gutaro and then almost cuts his head off. This is one of the coolest. Just I love that because that's totally a oh he picked this up from Tengen and his wives, and it's cool as shit. I like Tanjiro being a ninja for a moment. Yes, yeah, it is definitely we, as we see throughout the series that Tanjiro's like growth is how what he's he's taking from all these people he meets, um, kind of incorporating it into him both in a fighting sense, but then also like in like a 
narrative and like sort of character sense as well. Um, two yeah. things I would like you to, or t- sorry, uh, two things I'd like you to tell us about Sean. One is, uh, can you explain the in Japanese what where the like the flashy and all of that stuff is for people who don't speak Japanese? Uh, and then I also wanted you to tell us about the voice actor for Tengen because he's great. Yes, so the voice actor is uh, Katsuki Kon- uh, Konishi, who, as with all of the voice actors for the uh, Hashira, is just like a fucking great voice actor who's been a main character in like a million different shows. It's just because like I usually associate him that he plays in a lot of like rom-coms and stuff like that he's usually like a male friend character like a best friend of like the main character or something who is like a very much like a straight man kind of person who like he's very good at what in japanese you call it scummy role where it's like he's and you get that a lot with tengen tengen has that as well where he like really like kind of can shout and like um like have these like very funny like kind of comic retorts um, his most famous role is probably he's one of the main characters, Kamina, in uh, Tengen Topa Gurenlagen, which is a funny, uh, good little bit of uh, stuff there. Uh, and then he's also trying to remember, there's another thing that he was in that he was really, really good as I'm blanking on. He's a, a, a relatively small supporting character, but one I always really loved. He's a character named Hisagi in Bleach. Um, who I forget who he's like one of the lieutenants of one of the captains in Bleach but it's like a character who's like not in it a huge amount but he always made a really huge impression on me and I think a lot of it is Konishi's performance there's just so much like strength to his voice and he really brings that uh, to Kimetsu no Yaiba as well Um, so it's, it's a thing where I haven't seen everything that this guy has done it's not like when we get to Hanazawa Kana for next season, I'll talk about her for like 40 minutes because I've seen like every show she's been in because I really love her uh, performances and stuff. But uh, everything this guy's been in, um, I fucking love. Yeah, he's I think you definitely hear the like romantic protagonist side of him here yes. because he gets you really get the like just the charm of the character. Like, yeah, this guy has three wives, damn it. And they love him and they will die for him. And you understand why. And that is that is why you cast this guy. And he's fucking great. Yeah. In terms of the the flashy side of him, um, it, it, the, the word he's using for that in Japanese is hare, so he's always saying like hare ni koze, like let's do this in like a flashy or like showy, like loud, extravagant kind of way. Um, and it's definitely it's one of those things where I, I think this is always true of any anime thing of where when a character has a verbal quirk like that in Japanese, it always like sounds much more natural. And so I think it's one of those things that's hard to translate because it sounds a little bit awkward in English for a character to use the same word over and over and over again. Um, but it's just like it's his what you call in Japanese his kuchikusei like his sort of like his verbal habit or his like a kind of a vocal tick that he's always talking about like let's do this in a loud flashy extravagant kind of fashion um, and, and it is definitely something that um, is fun about the character yeah no I just thought it would be fun to get a little Japanese lesson there for us all um, that is one where, at the, thank God they actually at least used the word though, because I know there's no perfect way to do it, but I'm glad they actually just used the word flashy in the subtitles and didn't leave it as hare or something fucking stupid like that. Anyway, um, which would have been great if you just knew the word, but if you were trying to actually read subtitles, would have been a problem. So anyway, he's great. 
Um, but when we, but the, we should probably talk about the next couple episodes, which is when you get to the pleasure district and you start to have, you know, your initial adventures there, which is always like in the manga. And then when I rewatched in the anime is a shorter, actually like group of story stuff than I remembered. Um, but is a fun couple of episodes where, I mean, just the image of all of the main characters becoming, you know, um, like pleasure girls basically for a couple of episodes, especially Inosuke. This is... Uh The longest period in the whole manga, Inosuke has the mask off. Um, he never has it. He does have it off again once in a while, but never this long again. And I love that he is the prettiest of the boys. Yes. Uh, like, all of the jokes around that I find very funny. Um, uh, that Inosuke, like, the, the, like, sort of madam of the establishment or whatever, finds him, like, with all the ridiculous makeup um, um, that's been put on him. And it's like, oh, I... No, this like this is a you know a diamond in the rough basically i found like we like put take all this fucking shit off look how gorgeous this girl is um yeah and all of that shit i find incredibly funny um and but i think i equally love uh that zinisu is so upset over that he's the last one to be chosen and the fact that he's just like is a master like shamisen player or whatever i mean he can master so every instrument because he's got like the really good ears and he's just like furiously rocking out on the shamisen being like i'm gonna fuck that dude up like i'm gonna show him by becoming the best prostitute in all of yashiwana god damn it um it's like that scene i thought was incredibly funny well, because that's that second episode, which is basically where Tengen is taking them around the Pleasure District and telling them about the mission and then trying to get them all sold off. And they have the fun graphics on screen of, like, the first one to be sold, yes. the second one to be sold, and then it's Zenitsu rejected. <laughs> and then Zenitsu playing the Samisen. It's fucking great. I also think it's kind of funny that this is airing um, while we still have the, the Wano District of One Piece going on, because the Wano uh, arc of, of One Piece is plays with all of the same imagery. There's a pleasure district. You have like Robin infiltrates in, in one of those areas. You have the Samisen for the anime adaptation. They did a great job with this where the Samisen becomes like a central part of the score of that part of the anime because it's there in the manga as well. Um, and it is kind of funny to compare the two. Demon Slayer spends much, much less time on it. Wano has been going on for over three years in the manga. <laughs> and this is 30 chapters and 11 episodes. We're over 100 episodes of Wano in the anime, I think, at this point. Um, but anyway, uh, th- and that part of Wano isn't the whole thing, but the first like 30 to 50 episodes have a lot to do with that. And it's kind of fun to, to make the comparison because it's these two very different shonen anime kind of playing with the same cultural signifiers. So I think it's a fun little comparison. Yeah, like on that note of like other anime that do this kind of thing, one thing that like... I have to always remind myself that this is the Yukakahin or the Pleasure District arc because I desperately want to call it Yoshiwada in Flames because that's a really good arc from Gintama that is also about them going to what is like a historical Pleasure District or I guess you could call it like Red Light District um, in in Edo uh, slash I guess at this point it would be Tokyo um, that it was real like it's, it was a real place uh, and in Gintama there's an arc that's set in there and the whole city is on fire and destroyed at the end um, so I always want to call this Yoshiwara in flames because the exact same thing happens in this arc where the whole town is destroyed is completely on fire um, and I find that kind of funny it, it is a it seems to be a bit of like a recurring sort of idea uh, in a lot of shonen stuff partially because it's like if you watch old samurai movies and stuff this is like a very common setting I mean this is like maybe half of every fucking Zatoichi movie is set in either Yoshiwada or a Yoshiwada-esque place uh, in, like, uh, Edo-era Japan. Um, so it's definitely, like, a 
because it was a really big cultural thing historically where it is kind of goes into some of it with like the gate, the geisha and the oidan and the rankings and, and all that kind of stuff that like the courtesan like culture of historical Japan was very important. Um, and this being set at the end of the Taisho period is like right at the tail end of that being like an active ongoing element of like relatively mainstream Japanese culture historically. Yeah, Gotoke has actually uh, on their on their Wikipedia page says Gintama was a major influence. So well, there you who go. knows? Maybe maybe it's a conscious thing. Um, and of course, as you say, Gintama would have been influenced by all of that stuff too. So it's you know it's a it's a well trod path. But I it's very fun when when uh, Demon Slayer does it. Even though again, it's really only the first couple of episodes that are playing with that, and then it's off to the races for all of the action stuff. But even then, the action is you know inflected by it in fun ways. Um, it is funny to me though like we get to the big fight really fast because the first episode is that premiere we talked about then you have infiltrating the the pleasure district which is the second episode the third episode is mainly about Zenitsu realizing that Warabi Hime is probably the demon and then at the end of that Zenitsu gets captured and then the last eight are basically the big action sequence because the next one is is the episode tonight Konya where it's all kind of preparing for the final battle and it ends with Tanjiro starting the fight with Daki and from there on, I mean, that's the whole season. Yeah, and I think, like, really, and for me, the episode Layered Memories is where it, like, really sort of goes into high gear because that's the one where Tantra yes. does this sort of, like, failed transformation and uh, stuff like that. But yes, yeah, it is a, it's a pretty quick setup um, to a very, you know, big multi-phase um, action sequence. But it does do a lot of, I think, very important work of just setting up both of giving you some like nice sort of like comic relief at the beginning of the season because it's just nice you know because it's a very funny show um being able to have some of that humor and just see the characters bounce off of each other is very fun um but also you know like part of the kind of thematic construction of this arc is about the like you know the sort of like darker seedier side of you know this kind of historical prostitution of you know the two demons are children of a prostitute who were like abandoned and abused in the district and had to fend for themselves. And then they're taking all that abuse out back onto the district itself and like twisting it and corrupting it into this, like even worse version of what it it was. Um, And then that like conflict and that tension exploding out very dramatically into destroying the entire fucking place. Um, It's a very like, like just like looking at the way that the district itself is used as a setting is I think very satisfying from a storytelling point because it's taking all these like sort of subliminal more like subtextual subconscious things that are underneath the surface and then ripping all those out until everything is on fire and the place visually is like the things that for Daki and Yutado it always was in their life when they grew up and like all those things are the things they're ripping out and bringing it up to the surface Definitely, I will say in the in the manga, this is either my favorite or at the very least one of my favorite versions of the the demons are very evil. And then we get the ending where we get all Uh of the empathy with them, which we talked about a lot in the season one podcast is something that makes Demon Slayer. That's the first thing that made me realize how special this series was when I watched season one is all those moments where Tanjiro will go up to the demon after he's killed it and like be empathetic towards it and we will get its backstory and I do think the the Pleasure District arc might have the best version of that in the whole series because mm-hmm. the Daki Gutaro backstory is just brutally heartbreaking. And because of how it's 
done where we have gone through this whole thing of infiltrating the pleasure district, learning about it, seeing the fun side of it at first, then the seedier side, then it explodes into action. Then by the time we learn the backstory, it's on fire and in flames and everything's just blown to hell. And that's where we learn about like where that fire came from. And that's the end of the season. And it is Tanjiro and Nezuko being there to learn it together. Um, there might not be a better version of that in this whole series, which is saying something. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's one of those things where it's just got a very nice, clean kind of bottle structure to the story here um, that I really like, uh, that it's so much like the setting of the the pleasure district itself is is such a fundamental part of the story that they're telling in this really interesting way and and i think like the way that it connects to actual like history and culture and stuff like that um lends it this like very different flavor like it just feels very distinct of compared to the other kumetsu yaiba arcs that are more like you know in, in their own kind of world right because we get the village swordsmith arc next which is awesome but it doesn't quite have this like oh it's set in a real place and it's about like real culture it's this weird sort of like hidden mountain village where they make all the swords and then after that it's just like weird fucking crazy demon land basically for the whole giant last arc um and there's something that it lets the pleasure district arc get to be very unique within the structure of the, the whole series which i think is very fun yeah, because this being historical Japan is thematically important to yes. what Kimetsu does. Mm-hmm. It, it, you might forget it in future seasons, but I will just say, assuming they adapt the actual ending of yeah. the manga, which I hope they do, it's really important that this is historical Japan. And so at the very least, we get this arc where they they took it seriously. I mean, one of the best things this season does is it's the uh, episode nine when everything just goes to fucking hell at the end. You think they've won. And then there's the big explosion and all of that. And it, or no, this is, sorry, this is the, after that. This is the penultimate, yeah, episode, the penultimate episode where we, they have one, but then Gutaro's body blows up and the end credits roll over an instrumental while we're just watching the fire and the smoke over the entertainment district. That is a stunning conclusion to that episode. Yeah, and it's just all the thoughtfulness of that setting and how it plays into the rest of the story is is really cool. And it's, and it's the thing that I think particularly having read the manga already and rewatching the and watching it in animated form it was like the thing i was like kind of looking for in that early part of the story a little bit was like how does like all those elements kind of play in and and um affects our characters in a different way because one thing is like i also love we didn't really talk about tanjiro in his sort of experience integrating in is so sort of delightful where he's just the most hardworking, diligent person in the world. So of course <laughs> we, he, when he, it's sort of like sold to this house of prostitution, he just is like, well, okay, what can I do next? Okay. I'll take this and I'll scrub all the floors. It's like, okay, what next? Okay. Let me lift like this, like 500 giant boxes and just lift and take them up these stairs, stairs and like move this here. And like, everybody loves him. Um, nobody actually believes that he's really a woman, which is such a funny scene <laughs> at the end where he can so like, good. what do you mean you do? Um, oh, you have maybe the funniest Tanjiro moment ever is when he has to lie. And when he has to yes. lie, he, like his whole face contorts and he looks like uh, like up at the sky. And, like he is animated in this super like deformed way because he's such a like 
good, honest person that just this little innocent white lie that is so necessary for him to be integrated, like he just can barely bring himself to fucking say it. Um, in in uh, the manga, as in the anime, both does this thing, like a little like information card, like a PSA. I'm like, did you know <laughs> Dodger is such an honest, diligent person that when he lies, like he can't help but contort his entire body in the effort to lie to somebody. Um, that is an incredibly funny moment. Uh, it's phenomenal. I fucking love it. So good. We haven't talked about maybe the funniest thing in those early episodes, which is Tengen Uzui's muscle mice. Yes. Oh my god. I remember reading that in the manga and being like, this is the greatest thing in this entire fucking series, is the muscular mice bringing Inosuke his swords. Oh my god, I love those characters. Yes, yeah, it's just a little tiny thing. And, and I love, like, it comes up again a couple of the times of, like, when Zenitsu is freed, it's, there's like a little, it's like, by the way, his sword was brought to me yeah. by the muscular mice brigade or whatever. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, that it just totally feels like this random thing that like Gotoge was right in the manga and realized, oh, where are their swords? What should I do about that? Oh, what about muscle mice? And it's just a yeah. great little idea. Because they're called they're called ninju, which means like ninja beasts. So it's like it's like it's a very like ninja fantasy kind of thing of, you know, like it's a, a bunch of characters have this kind of shit in Naruto where they train, you know, mat like super ninja dogs and shit like that. Um, I don't think I've ever seen ninja mice before, but it's it's like kind of playing off of that idea. Um, but I just I love the way they're drawn. These like little cartoon mice with like these like Arnold Schwarzenegger bodies with little mice heads. Uh, it's very good. Yes. You know, and, and overall, I think the, the overall char character balance of this season I love for, for those who haven't read the manga. This is sort of the last arc that is really Zenitsu, mm -hmm. Inosuke and Tanjiro together as your sort of main force. All of those characters are still in the rest of the manga and have really great stuff left to come, but they're not necessarily a three-man unit again like yeah. this. And this is such a great version of that. They bounce off each other so well. They all have such phenomenal moments. Zenitsu, for a couple episodes, there you go, ah, he's asleep, he's not talking, does he get to do anything cool? And then he does the coolest shit in the yes. whole fucking arc. Um, Inosuke... I, you all know how much I love Inosuke. He's my boy. He's my favorite character in the show. He's my, one of my favorite vocal performances ever. The moment in like, I think it's the episode called Tonight where he realizes he, the demon is under this hole in the ground. So he just dislocates every bone <laughs> in his body so he can go down the hole, at, which sets up the moment where he survives because he can yes. move his heart inside his body. Man, I Inosuke, and Inosuke gets a big moment because he's yeah. the one who goes in and, and uh, cuts off Daki's head that first time when we, we think we're going to win and then everything goes to hell. Um, and then, of course, Tanjiro gets a bunch of great stuff off of both of them. Um, we get we got a, that great moment. This is also in the episode tonight where Inosuke and, and Tanjiro are on top of the roof and Inosuke just starts hitting Tanjiro yes. over and over again, um, which has become one of my favorite gifts on the internet. So... It's so good. Yeah, both Inosuke and Zenitsu get so much good stuff. And I think particularly Zenitsu, I think, like, shines a lot in this arc because he's the character obviously has, like, the most character growth because he's the most, like, extreme character uh, the, the, with his, like, cowardness and all that kind of stuff uh, that you have to, like, kind of contort a little bit the narrative in order to get him to actively fight. But he has, like, this really great, powerful, heroic moment early in the season that's kind of, like, part of the inciting incident that sets up the whole battle, which is he stands up to Daki um, knowing that she's a demon. He figures that out immediately, and he, like, pegs that she's an upper-ranked demon, but still stands up to her because she's abusing that little girl at the brothel um, and, like, grabs her arm and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's it's a thing that, like, it's very satisfying 
Um, you, you know, and it makes it like sort of worth it that he you get all the fun jokes of him technically being asleep when he's doing all the crazy action stuff in the second <laughs> half, which leads to some of the best lines from Inosuke as he's like just completely baffled by what the fuck's happening with Sanitsu. Um, but that that is all predicated also by the fact that like fully awake Zenitsu is a much more kind of confident bold character that when push comes to shove he really will stand up for people um and i think that that's like a really great moment for that character yeah well and it comes back because when he uh-huh. when he uh like basically squares off with Docky at the end of the season in his like sleep mode he still is thinking about that and brings it back and asks it and the vocal performance there is so good i love how he vacillates between scared inosuke and confident sleepy inosuke or not Inosuke, sorry, Zenitsu. Yeah. Um, it's so fucking fun. Yeah, th- this is Shimo Hiro, the voice actor for Zenitsu. I imagine must have been very satisfied that a lot of, that the majority of his dialogue this season was not him screaming at the absolute top of his lungs. Because <laughs> I can only imagine that must be a very stressful role as a professional voice actor, because you're like, God, if I fucking push it too far, I'm going to completely throw my fucking voice out and can't do any other work for like weeks. Um, and this time, he, you know, he does get some of those, you know, you still get your like big over the top Zenitsu comedy, but you also get a lot more like very cool, calm, confident Zenitsu. Um, and yeah, and, and Shimano Hito is so good at playing both sort of extremes of that character. Yeah, man. Yeah. And Inosuke, just good stuff all over the place. Tanjiro and Nezuko. I mean, do we need to talk about Nezuko's demon transformation? Because it is so... I remember vividly that being a... Put a pin in this in the manga. I cannot wait yeah. to see this in the anime. You yeah. know? Because this is where, like, between Mugen Train and this now, it's it's very satisfying to see, like, Ikito Akari, the voice actress for Nezuko, get to, like, play more for the character, right? Because for most of season one... It's it's very good because it's very adorable, but it's mostly her going like mm, and like making right. Nezuka noises. Um, you know, she gets some juicy stuff in the first episode and stuff, but um, this is where she gets to play huge ranges of the character. She gets to play like full dialogue and dream sequences and flashbacks and stuff like that. And then in the transformation, like like th- she really sells all of that so well of of the way that Nezuko slowly like loses herself and starts becoming sadistic. Um, it's yeah, it's a incredible sequence and just like the whole design, the way that like Nezuko, you know, she like transforms physically into like an adult to like be at like the peak of her like physical performance, um, which I think like symbolically like visually contrasts so well with the pleasure district and all the stuff that's going on with like the sexual exploitation of women and all that and in Daki. And there's just like some very like vibrant i think like imagery that can be had with the way that nezuko like has to shift and change her body um in order to transform and fight and kind of match what the demons are doing um all of that i just think is very compelling on just like a core kind of thematic and symbolic way absolutely and i love that kind of like vine pattern that comes up over her is very striking and haunting and that fight is just one of the best animated things in the season you really feel the impact of, like, she is tearing Daki apart. Like, she could win this fight. The problem is, what Tanjiro doesn't want is for her to go full demon and never be able to come back from it, right? And so there's this really heavy tension where, like, she might be their best weapon, but they do not want to use her. And, of course, the episode that follows that where Tanjiro has his, like, sword hill or um, cover in her mouth and is, like, holding her back and trying to get her to come back is phenomenal, leading to that great sequence where he starts doing the lullaby and then we get the full flashback and we get a full song version of it. 
just yeah it's a stunning sequence yeah and then in like nezuko crying and slowly turning into a baby and like the all like the pent-up emotion that comes out and that is yeah such a powerful scene like that's that's like you know as as spectacular as the rest of the season goes like i think like maybe that those two middle episodes might actually be my favorite layered memories and transformation where there's there's something there where I think it's some of the most interesting stuff that Kimetsu no Yaiba does playing with like archetypes and tropes in shonen stuff, um, which is like the transformation, the like, you know, the archetypal Super Saiyan transformation that is ubiquitous across the entire genre. Everything has something that is Super Saiyan-esque. Obviously, like even Super Saiyan itself isn't the first version of that. There's stuff that predates Dragon Ball that did those kinds of transformations. Um, and I think there's something about with Kimetsu no Yaiba, it's always really important to remember that as extreme as the things that a lot of the human characters do, they are fundamentally human. That like within the diegesis of the project, like they're not, they're not shooting light fire out of their sword. They're not actually emitting lightning. You know, again, Tanjiro is not wet at the end of every single fight because he's not actually shooting water out of his sword as amusing as it would be if like every single time he had to get a fucking <laughs> towel and dry off because he uses his fucking flowing water move or whatever. Um, those are Every all- time he finishes a fight, Nezuko opens the box and hands him a towel. Yes. That's her job. <laughs> yeah, this is like at the end of every fight, it's just you got a two-minute sequence of, of Tanjiro wiping down with a towel. Uh, but all the, the visualizations of the techniques are done to like graphically express the extraordinary nature of what their like human swordsmanship and their like the perfection of their body they've achieved by mastering these breathing techniques that just enhance their natural physical abilities. It's just a graphic way to draw all that because obviously in the real world, there's no way to do magic like super sword stuff. So you do sort of visualize it in this way. But it's important to understand that fundamentally, Tandro is a dude. He's not a magic warrior. He's not a space alien. He's not a demon boy. He's none of those things. He is, he is a very hardworking, highly trained, diligent young man who is like, has an incredible amount of willpower, which is like the thing that all the demons have, or all the demon slayers have. It's this incredible willpower that is driving them to do these things and fight through extraordinarily pain and fight through this like impossibly hard training. But so what all that means is that when the time comes for Tanjiro to try to do his shonen protagonist transformation trope, he can't actually do it properly. Um, There is a transformation that they sort of tease at the end, but the nature of that transformation is very different. It's not a Super Saiyan type thing. It's, It's something that we'll talk about when eventually further arcs get developed, but the nature of the mark that on his head that's connected to sun breathing is not really a transformation in a typical sense for a shonen protagonist or shonen sort of series. So his sort of failed transformation of where he gets so angry at Daki for destroying this district, killing all these people and just seeming not to care about it is, is what he does is he stops breathing Um, And I think that that's such an interesting idea that really what he's experiencing is like my interpretation of it is that he's just experiencing an incredible rush of adrenaline because he's asphyxiating himself. Right. It's the same phenomena that some people, you know, autoerotic asphyxiation for a very different sense is built on the same premise that if you asphyxiate yourself, your body kicks into overdrive, trying desperately to get you to survive. So it shoots you full of adrenaline. So when he does the thing, the classic Shannon protagonist thing of where the attack is coming at him and he's like, oh, before I couldn't see this at all. But now it looks like it's moving in slow motion. That's because he's experiencing such an adrenaline high that as in in real life, when you when you're experiencing an adrenaline high, time does perceive, perceive it to be moving slower than it actually is, increasing your reaction speed and stuff. 
But of course, that's not like a sustainable thing. That's not a thing that a human can do. You can't just sort of like starve yourself of oxygen to boost your adrenaline to try to get you to do extraordinary things because it's just going to kill you. So he has that flash of his sister, um, one of his younger sisters uh, from beyond the grave, begging for him to breathe. And, you know, he's not able to execute at the very end. I think it's such a compelling subversion of that kind of trope where anger for Tanjiro is not a weapon that he can wield because it's not a thing that for people, it doesn't just make you magically stronger. It doesn't just make you magically better. You can't just get angry and suddenly be a more powerful warrior. But if you're a demon, you can't because demons are magical. Demons are supernatural. So for Nezuko, her emotions and her feelings and those things that like internal reality for her does affect very directly the nature of the abilities she's able to express on the world. And she's the one who's actually able to go through like the magic super saiyan type transformation, but with the nature of the world of Kansu Yaiba with horrible consequences. So I think that that like dual dynamic at the midpoint of the season that I think sets up the nature of the rest of the fight, that that is the lesson that Tanjiro has to learn is that he alone through his emotions can't just magically get power, like more powerful. He has to like dig in, fight with people, think about what he's doing and work as a team um, and, and never give in and always fight as a human, that that's the only way that he can possibly try to live through this fight. And I think that the way that that plays with that core um, shonen trip at the middle of the season, in the middle of this arc is such a great stroke of storytelling genius. Oh, I completely agree. I think if I had to pick the best episode of the season, I do think it's Layered Memories. Although episode 10, the yeah. uh, the Never Give Up, is uh, very much up there. Uh-huh. But I do think that that inversion is very smart because it is... And it's not like we've never seen this in Shonen. Like, you know, Gohan going Super Saiyan 2, the point of that is his anger stops him from mm-hmm. actually doing the thing, right? And that's what gets Goku killed. So it's not like no one's ever played with this. But I do love that... Both halves of our main character, Tanjiro and Nezuko, both have this rage-filled transformation, and it's bad for both of them, and neither of them can use it. It's not like at the end of the season when Tanjiro is on his last legs trying to defeat Yutaro, he doesn't open the box and say, like, Nezuko, get angry, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he doesn't do that because that's not, they'd rather die than have her, you know, become an evil demon, right? So I love that that is our, our midpoint. Tanjiro does come very close to winning the fight. I, he wouldn't have actually won, yeah. we know later, but from what we know at the moment, he would have won. Um, and Nezuko also comes very close, but the rage is the wrong like lever for this in both ways. And what ultimately allows them to win is pure teamwork. I love that that is the end of the season, is it takes everybody... Some of them have holes in their chest. Some of them are missing limbs and eyes. And Tanjiro has a fucking sickle through his throat. But all of them working together, that's what allows them to do it. Nobody nobody does it alone. And again, I don't think this is a spoiler, but that is true for the rest of Kimetsu. Nobody wins a one-on-one fight in the rest of this series. Yeah, because that's like the lesson that's learned from Mugen Train, right? Is that like, it's just not possible. There is absolutely no way no matter how powerful that human is that one human could defeat those upper rank demons there's only one human in all of history you get a little flashback in this in the in layered memories where you see the first swordsman and he's like this legendary figure that made the sun breathing technique and we'll learn more about him in future seasons um but he's the only person and he's this like legendary king arthur-esque like historical figure no real living human being could possibly defeat an upper rank demon on their own it's just not possible it's 
all about the team. It's about coming together and working together. Um, and like that dynamic, there's such a commitment to that theme, which, as you say, it's not the first time we've ever seen this idea. It's very common in Shonen, but I feel like it's one of those things that's like it's a very common idea that Shonen stuff pays lip service to, but very rarely actually has real follow through on because it is usually you're so wrapped up in the like excitement of the anger induced transformation that when you try to undercut it a little bit, it never really kind of pulls all the way through. Whereas I think in Kimetsu Yaiba, like the follow through on it is so important. It's so important that this transformation fails at the beginning of the fight. It's not that like, you know, because with Gohan, yeah, the Super Saiyan 2 anger stuff is still part of the story, but it's still so cool. And he's Super Saiyan 2 for the whole fight. And you're like playing a Super Saiyan right. 2 Gohan in all the video games and like losing your mind about how rad it is. Whereas, you know, there's no, you know, you know, autoerotic asphyxiation mode for Tanjiro in <laughs> fucking Hinokami Chronicles 2. Or there probably won't be. If there is, I hope that is what they named that character. Um, but Sean, a couple of things. Yeah. One, fuck you for making me imagine the fan art of Tanjiro <laughs> oh, autoerotically asphyxiating himself. Oh god. If someone wants to, if someone wants to draw that and tweet it at Sean, it's what he deserves. He's brought this into the world. We need to, we need to have that now. Second, <laughs> it's also the uh, the the teamwork side of it, yeah. right? So, because I think teamwork is another thing. Look, there is no more ubiquitous term in shonen anime than friendship, right? Yeah. You know, um, friendship is the bonds of true strength or something, whatever the Persona 4 animation mm -hmm. line is. But I think Kimetsu does it uniquely well, as it does yeah. a lot of these things, because, you know, there is always a temptation that I think most mangaka and most anime give into, which is that your protagonist is the coolest one and needs to win in the end. Dragon Ball made a whole lot of attempts to like move beyond Goku and never actually did yeah. it, right? You know, it's very rare that you actually have, it's one of the reasons I really like the, uh, the universe survival arc in Super. It actually is an ending where Goku teams up to win, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, you know, One Piece, One Piece usually does default to Luffy winning at the end, even when it does very cool team stuff in the middle of arcs frequently. We actually, this happened in Wano where the fight with um, the, the, the current big bad Kaido started as all of the worst generation characters fighting together. And it's probably my favorite fight in all of One Piece. And it is ending right now with Luffy and Kaido one-on-one. -on -one. Now, there was a team that went and fought Big Mom and that was cool too. But usually you get to that like one-on-one -on -one thing. And that's never, like Gotoge is always very, good about resisting the this is not going to end with Tanjiro being the ultimate hero Tanjiro's heroics are the trusting in other people and that is part of his arc this this season is because Nezuko has that great line where it's like you're always saying you're sorry yeah. right you're always saying you know go men go men go men and you know you need to stop it it's not all on you and it's not all your fault and it's not all your job to fix and that is ultimately what leads them to win in the end. Yeah, that so much of this arc is about Tanjiro having to let go of like the ego that he does have as this like big brother that he feels like the weight of responsibility he feels is such a double-edged sword that on one end, it's like the thing that drives him to do the things that he does, which are extraordinary. But at a certain point, he needs to learn to let it go because it's not about him, right? Um, it's about this whole team. And if he made it less about himself, maybe there was a version of that Mugen train fight where he maybe could have like survived long enough or like avoided that hit that he got from the train conductor or whatever if he was thinking more about the bigger picture and working as a team and less focused so much on like, I got to master the Hinokami Kagura. I got to do this. It's about me. 
like executing my like shonen protagonist thing and he's got to let go of that ego um that's you know that's what he does in this arc and it's like in the, it, it is satisfying they they do give him the last sword stroke that does cut off Yutano's head but it's entirely because Tengen completely sets it up right like Tengen creates the the opening it's like you know teamwork makes the dream work right it's like basketball you gotta get the whole team has to work <laughs> together to open up the court enough that you can go in for your sick dunk Tanjiro gets the sick dunk but he's only able to do it because there was like a lot of good plays and some good picks and like a good pass from Tengen that lets you get that fucking last cut in. Um, and it's it's just very satisfying to see that be a thing that like a shonen series that is so good, like really fully commit to. Because yes, it is the like great curse of shonen stuff is that it just can't avoid the temptation of having the sick one-on-one showdown at the end. And everybody loves the sick one-on-one showdown, but sometimes in a narrative sense, it's just not the right choice. And the Kimetsu no Yaiba shows that like you can make the action fucking as amazing as anything and still avoid the need to have the one-on-one cowboy, you know, duel kind of thing at the end of your your arc. I like the sick dunk metaphor uh, because most sick dunks do not end with the basketball player having a sickle through their mouth. Yes. <laughs> that is, honestly, Sean, I remember reading that in the manga and going, I don't know if they can get that on television. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. anime is pretty open with what they can do, but, like, Demon Slayer is not a, like, adult anime midnight show. It's, you know, it's got commercials and all of that stuff. Yeah. And this season is every bit as bloody as the manga, which leads me to believe they won't be cutting stuff in future seasons, which get really gnarly if yeah you've read the, yeah read the manga. future stuff definitely <laughs> reminds you that like oh right this can, was originally conceptualized as a horror manga like holy shit that's like clearly a lot of good yeah. influences <laughs> yeah like that is like the one place that i think like the uh, the manga is clearly like a more visceral version of is that sickle thing there's something about the manga panel i think it's just that like you just because you just like have to sit with that fucking image and stare at it you don't get to like have it passively move on is there's something so about like the eye like seeing it stick all the way through and you just see the little like tip of it come out and tantra has to like move his tongue to keep his tongue from getting impaled like that's just such a like brutally realistic kind of injury where you feel like you can just like you can feel it in your own jaw as soon as you see that happen um it's just like it's very gross um and yeah like that that is that is a moment that particularly what i read in the manga like really stood out to me as like oh my god this is fucking graphic i don't i this this doesn't happen in dragon ball you know dragon ball you might get impaled (laughs) through the chest um you know that happens to a couple people but this is like a very specific kind of injury that is more like in the kind of saw world of how like particular it is in the way that it's like mutilating a person Generally, I think those things feel gnarlier in any manga because I actually think bloody stuff in yeah. black and white is much mm-hmm. more haunting. At, at the moment you move it to color, it, it never feels quite as visceral. I will still say, though, that is definitely a moment last night. I had forgotten that that happens, uh-huh. and when it happened, I yelled, fuck, yeah. at the TV very loud. Oh, it's still gnarly in the anime. It's just not quite <laughs> as gnarly as the manga version. Yeah. No. Oh, my God. It's so good. That entire episode 10, Never Give Up, I mean... Uh, there's just there's so much stuff going on in that episode that I couldn't believe I was seeing in terms of the animation and the overall push towards the the final beheading is so it it feels like when you beat a boss in Dark Souls to go back to our Elden Uh Ring discussion and you have that like exhale that like lasts 20 seconds it's like that for a whole episode and it's amazing I also feel like we need to give a shout out to the music here the score this season 
Because now you've got all of the themes and music from season one. You've got all of the music from Mugen Train, which was amazing. And all of that is in the pot, along with now all of the new themes they've come up with for season two. And it's really virtuosic. Just the composers are just pulling from all of these different threads, throwing out new music. They're making all of these really cool associations. Like the moment where Tengen comes back in after he's lost, after we think he's dead and he's lost his arm and he goes back into the fight. That is using a, it's playing with a version of the theme from when Rengoku goes in to die, basically. Uh And so it's like, it's like shifting that to like, but now this is life. He's, he's living and he's doing it. There's just all sorts of like really, really smart associations like that in the music. And it is also just impossibly rousing. It's basically movie quality anime music for 11 episodes it's one of the most impressive parts of this season yeah i think it's definitely one of the areas where they 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 stepped up the game even more from season one not to say that season one was lacking it's still a great score but i think like mugen train being a movie like really they like went to town on that score it's why like the score is like predominantly untouched in the tv version because it's just like the score is so good and it's such a like particular score to the movie and they they clearly it was like working as like a whole project like directly with that music because of how well scored it is to to all the action and it feels like this is not quite the same thing because obviously it would have to be such a ridiculous volume of music for it to be unique music for the whole season um but it is a lot of really great new music a lot of great as you say reworking of themes particularly i also noted that tengen moment because that's also that's where that's my favorite line delivery that character has where he says where it's like we're going in for the win and he's jumping in and you're like and it's this one moment where you're like oh my god like you see the light and that and that Rengoku (laughs) theme starts playing you're like holy shit like we can maybe actually do this even as ridiculous as it is like the fact that Tengen is back like hope has been rekindled um I also particularly love there's a uh, instrumental version of Homura that plays at the scene where Mr. Rengoku, it's a flashback to Mr. Rengoku sending a letter to Tanjiro yes. about the sun breathing and the mark on the forehead and Tanjiro. And this sets up the like, he's not really a chosen one. He's not a super saiyan. Like, this is not the kind of person Tanjiro is. Um, is like, it's like, no, this isn't some sort of magic mark I was born with. I got burned on my forehead. Um, and then uh, Homura is playing throughout that whole sequence. And, like, that is such a great little musical, like, touchstone and stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, Go Shina and Yuki Kajiura. Yuki Kajiura, who we talked about someone on the Gundam Seed podcast because she was part of that team um, and did a lot of the end credit themes and stuff like that. They're just, like, at the top of the game um, and just have, like, continued to improve. And and it is really amazing stuff in this season. I'm glad you brought up that scene because that's probably, if I had to pick one reason why Layered Memories is my favorite episode, it's that scene. Of because that is one of my favorite moments in the manga because it's the same thing where we get that it's kind of hopeless and then there's that cut to Mr. Rengoku writing the letter and then it's Tanjiro clearly in the past has read this letter and thought about it but we're getting it all presented in the moment here and one of my favorite moments in the manga how do you improve upon it? Well, you have Hanai Natsuki doing the vocal and you have a a new instrumental version of Homura under all of that just to make you weep tears of unfathomable sadness. It's incredible. Yeah, Uh, and it's one of those things of like... This is another theme that we'll see, like, got into in more detail that um, is one that I think a lot of shonen stuff pays lip service to and doesn't have much follow through. Um, Naruto is probably the most notable offender in this one, which is the chosen one, of trying to avoid the chosen one narrative stuff. And then if you go on long enough... 
you just eventually everyone stumbles into the chosen one narrative and Tantro is like definitively not a chosen one. And anytime there's like a thing where it gestures towards it, it's always to like sort of play with or subvert that trope in some way. Um, and this is like the first clear instance of it, of him being like, no, like I was not born with this mark. This is just a weird scar that looks somewhat similar to the birthmark that his father did have. Um, and, and I love that of just like him being like, nope, I'm not the legendary warrior of prophecy or anything like that. Like, I can't even really use the Hinokami Kagura that well. That's the other thing he needs to learn is how to blend that and his water breathing style. Um, it's like he just has to do the best he can with what he's got because he's not Superman, you know, and it's just like he's just not that kind of character. Yeah. Well, what else should we say about season two before we look on towards the future? Uh, I've, you know, we've sort of talked around it a little bit because it's obviously such an, an obvious thing that we talked about a lot with season one. But I do just have to really emphasize how incredibly good Han Ainatsuki's vocal performance is. Yes. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, it is definitely the best of, like, performance of this flavor, certainly going on today um, um, and, and maybe, like, ever. Like, it's just the amount of energy and strength he brings to the character in like the like big moments um, and the like real compassion and warmth in the more kind of like, you know, uh, slice of life kind of moments. It's just such a fully lived in performance. And it's particularly impressive to me because again, I, you know, I am a, like an avid follower of his YouTube channel where he plays video game, does video game videos and stuff. So it's like, I hear this dude's voice like every other day for like 30 minutes or something, watching one of his videos playing video games. And it's like, I'm so used to hearing his voice. And the fact that that, like, completely melts away and he's playing Tanjiro. And it's not like Tanjiro, he's not changing his voice much. It's just like, I mean, it's basically like Hane Natsuki, but, you know, playing a character. But he's not vocally adjusting his voice in any big way. Um, and I just get so lost and, like, melted into his performance. And I just believe it so fully that it was the thing that when I was reading the manga most of the moments I was most excited to be recreated in the anime was because I wanted to hear how Han Ainatsuki would deliver the lines. And there's one in this, um, which is the setup to the, like, um, you know, big failed transformation sequence where he goes and he grabs Daki by the Obi, stopping her in her, her tracks. And he, like, has this speech that reminds her of the first swordsman. And he has this line where he says, like, I won't forgive this kind of tyranny. Um, and the line in Japanese is like, Sono oboa, ore ga yurasanai. And the way he delivers that line with so much, like, grit and intensity in a way you've never heard Tanjiro speak before, like, that was the one I was like, Oh my god, I couldn't have in my wildest dreams imagined how good this line reading was going to be. Um, and it's like that for like every major scene that, that Tanjiro has in this whole season. Yeah, I. it is such a special performance. Because I think when you think of the big shonen protagonist voices, I always think of kind of like Masako Nozawa and that sort of lineage. Uh -huh. Like her and Mayumi Tanaka as Luffy or Junko Takeuchi as Naruto or any of those, right? Yeah. Where phenomenal A-plus Mount Rushmore performances, right? Like, just phenomenal pieces of voice acting. But for characters who are... They have a lot of complexity and a lot of things we love about them, but they're kind of fundamentally superheroes, right? Yes. They're very larger than life, and that is part of what makes those vocal performances so good, and I, I think also hard to capture in English, is that, like, larger-than-life quality. What's special about Tanjiro on the page, and then what Hanai Natsuki does with it, is he's not a superhero, this is a performance that 30 degrees to the left could be in a slice of life anime, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? Yeah. It has to get really big. 
I, I can imagine like Mayumi Tanaka, the actress, doing a slice of life anime. I can't imagine Luffy, the performance, being in that, uh-huh. right? Yes. Yeah. The thing about Tanjiro is I can, and there's just that level of like human nuance to it that he's allowed to play because of what's in the manga, what's on the page. And it's an actor, you know, rising to meet that moment. And it's a really, really special performance because of that. It really does sound like something, like I wouldn't say, you know, better or worse or anything than any other performance, but I would say it's very different than what you've generally heard from this genre. Yeah, and it's it's just, it's a thing where like as the series goes on and like Tondro like has to dig like into deeper and like other emotions, it's just very exciting to see that performance bring all that out as well. And then, of course, the other big you one. You know what? Oh, yeah, go oh, ahead. So, well, I was going to say, you know what I think might be the closest analog for this performance is, um, Meg- what's her name? Uh, the, the the woman who does Shinji in, in Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, Megami Ogata? Yeah, Megami I think I, I would kind of compare it maybe to that, of like it's a performance that is startling in its kind of like nuanced humanity. You know, it yes. is not a big anime, like... It is heroic, but it is not a mascot kind of performance. Yeah, it's more like grounded and more relatable while being in this like fairly extreme setting. Yeah, I I think that's a very good comparison. The other performance, of course, I have to talk about uh, because it's amazing and it's also very dear and dear to me is Miyuki Swashiro as Daki. Um, Holy fuck shit. Um, She's really good. She's so good. In particular, I think one of the most fun things about watching this season, having already read the manga, is is the early scenes with Daki um, and how much Miki Swashiro is so lived in as that character that like since I, you know, both of us know like what that character actually is, that she's not like big scary demon lady. Really, she's a spoiled brat. Um, that, that, that's kind of her character. Uh, but you're not, you're not really supposed to know that early on, um, and that she's supposed to be more like, oh God, this is the demon. Like this is someone to be feared. Um, and it's more that that character is undercut in a very interesting way later once Gyutada is introduced. But I think Miyuki Sarastra is so like, like is such a lived in feeling performance that if you know that that's where the character is going, you can hear all of that dynamic in the voice and in that performance, like that she is totally this spoiled little girl that is just very, very pleased at getting everything exactly the way that she wants, and but not because she's actually a queen-like figure, which I think is what you're meant to see the character as, is an almost Haman Karn-esque, like this is a queen of the universe kind of like um, um, empress kind of character. And that's the thing that Daki wants to be, but she's so far away from that in actuality. And I think Miku Swashiro, like, that element of the character is imbued into the entire performance. And as this, it, it goes on and on and more and more layers of the kind of, like, thing she's put on top of herself gets stripped off and you see how much she's this little, like, spoiled girl underneath all of that. Um, it's an incredible performance with just, like, such a range of emotions for the character. Um, with also just a bunch of very interesting like surprising line deliveries um like i think the moment when tanjiro is coming in to cut off her head um in the layered memories episode and she has this very taken aback reaction of like there's no way he could possibly get this oh how is he am i going to get my head cut off and like the very flat way she delivered that i thought was like a really interesting cool line delivery and i think the most interesting like effort or which is like a like like scream or like grunt kind of noise i've ever heard in a vocal performance is when 
fucking Nezuko steps like through her stomach right in that fight and the noise <laughs> yeah. that Mika Swasher makes is just like this like guttural ugh, like 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 almost like she's going to vomit I mean it sounds like her fucking stomach got stomped through and then this like wince of like shock and surprise it's such a like it's like a one second long little sound clip but there's like so much packed into it it's one of those of like it's 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 such a just like scrumptious performance on the I think you just you feel her having so much fun and bringing so much to this like really cool character um that you know as a massive fan of her work like this is a great great performance from her well I you know between this and all of we've talked about with uh with her on Genshin Impact uh-huh. recently she's very clearly in a phase of her career where people are casting her against the grain to do interesting things with her sort of persona. Yes. You know, like Genshin very clearly plays with different sides of the kinds of characters she does well. And this is very much a, it's kind of like the character, the the the, the sort of like prototypical Miyuki Swasher performance gets torn down over the course yes. of the season, right? Yes. And that's what's so surprising when she's doing stuff near the back half. And of course, the, the final lines the character has when she's like screaming at her brother as she's dying just hit you in the gut, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of how far you've seen sort of that collapse. It's really cool stuff. Yeah, it's just, a, it was a character that as soon as I saw it in the manga, I'm like, they have got to cast Miki Swasher as this character. It's like just immediately you can feel it so much. And then when that casting announcement came in, I'm like, yes, exactly. Very good. Um, but even then, like knowing all of that, I was still like, you know, it's, it's the thing that's true with her, with, like anything. Like I've never seen a thing where it feels like she's just doing a normal performance or kind of like, you know, just like sort of phoning it in or anything like that. She always really like brings 110% to it. Um, and she really did for this yeah. one. Um, this is a little bit of an aside. Want to t- I want to mention really oh, quickly, just because a thought occurred to me because we're talking to Miki Swashiro. I did find out recently because I was looking up something about her. I think it was after we talked about the Raiden Shogun stuff. I saw at her credits that she's playing the main Digimon on the current Digimon Ghost Game show that is ongoing. And I was and I saw that and I watched some clips of it. And it's like, holy shit, she's she's basically playing like a baby character in Digimon, but she is like, right now, she, if you want to see Miyuki Swasher play a baby dinosaur, that's happening right now in the currently airing Digimon show, and it seems kind of fucking amazing. I didn't know they'd started another, I thought that the last one had finished, is this, so they've already started another one? Yes. Yeah, well the last that's one funny. was like a remake of the original Digimon Adventure. Of Digimon this Adventure. is Digimon Ghost okay. Game, which is, yeah, like an actual new ongoing show. New on, okay. Yeah, oh my, it only started in October. Yeah, okay. Well, Fuck, I kind of want to watch that now. Yeah, it yeah seems that very sounds good. cool. Yeah, that seems awesome. Um, I also, Sean, I think maybe the performance that struck me most this season was Gutaro, mm-hmm. um, yeah. who is voiced by Ryota Osaka, who we would have talked about recently because one of his first roles was Klim Nick on Rekongista in G, the yes. Gundam show. Um, that was really that was like his third year of voice acting and one of his first leading roles. And we all we love our boy Klim Nick, right? Yes, the genius um, himself. Yes. Gutaro doesn't sound anything like that. You would not be able to recognize it yeah. by voice, but I just wanted to mention that. You know, Gutaro is a character with like a very exaggerated speech pattern. Mm-hmm. He's always ending his sentences in na, yeah. which I was actually surprised to see the subtitles basically do not try to get across at all, which, because that's a very easy thing to translate if you want to do. He's basically going, huh, at the end of all his sentences, you know? Um, but it's a very exaggerated speech pattern. But it's not just an exaggerated like gag performance, there's a lot to it. 
like the, there's a lot of like sinisterness. It's a great villain voice. The scene when he is when Tanjiro thinks they've all lost and he's backing away and he's just tormenting Tanjiro when he breaks his fingers. Yeah. That we forgot to oh talk about God. that. That is fucking brutal. And the way they animate it, they choose to just paint them purple for the rest of the season. <laughs> it looks so fucked yeah. up and brutal. Because they already do so much detail on Tanjiro's hands in the anime to like keep that sense of like they're all, you know, like calloused and stuff. And then you have the broken fingers. Anyway, he's very menacing in that scene. But then for the finale of this season with the big flashback, he narrates that whole thing. And so Gutaro has the most dialogue in the finale. And it is a tremendous performance that like really, again, it's as part from the manga that I deeply loved. And I think the way he does it, it, it is still Gutaro. And you see that like he was like that since he was a kid because of what the world basically made him into. But you see where that voice comes from and and you see the humanity underneath it. And, you know, for a performance that's only in the last four episodes of this season, it left a huge impression on me. Yeah, no, it's, it is a really great performance. And yeah, it's particularly those last two episodes, like the scene of him berating Tanjiro, particularly because, you know, since I rewatched it, like it was very fresh, like a lot of the dialogue that he uses to break Tanjiro is like word for word, the things that in the flashbacks, the other kids are like yelling at him, the same kinds of insults um, and stuff like that. So it's like very directly, it is, you know, it is Gutardo saying those things to himself through Tanjiro, right? Because there's the mirror of that the anime and manga makes like very like explicitly clear that there is a mirror here between the two brother sister pairs of Gutardo and uh, Daki and then uh, Tanjiro in Nezuko. And that Gutardo is like a darker version of Tanjiro that comes from a worse place in his life. Um, that lost his sister also in like a very tragic way, but couldn't escape from that tragedy and then like leaned into it and became a demon also. Um, and that it's a like one step off his path. I think is how Tanjiro um, refers to it. One misstep at any point in his life and he could have been like Yutaro. Um And yeah, the, the way that that, I think you get that humanity coming through and like the pain that that character suffered in the penultimate episode as he's yelling at Tanjiro, but really yelling at himself in his past, who he was not able to protect his sister. Um, and then seeing all that play out through that big flashback is, yeah, it's a great performance that takes a sort of like very kind of intentionally over the top sort of scarecrow-esque character with a very over the top kind of vo voice with a very over the top vocal tick and then bringing all of, like the humanity to it at the end, which is very much that like kind of Kimetsu Yaiba like kind of like mark of storytelling is that like the, the compassion and empathy at the end. Um, it's a great performance to be able to sell all of that stuff. That moment when Tanjiro covers Gutaro's mouth to stop him from yelling, genuinely one of my favorite moments in the whole series. Yeah. And like he holds the head as it, as it dies. I mean, Tanjiro, we said this in season one. It's very true. It's very obvious. Tanjiro's superpower is his empathy more than yeah. anything else. That's it. And, and it's what makes him who he is. And Hanai Natsuki's great. They give him a lot of great actors to play off of. I do not think they could have done anything better this season. <laughs> no, yeah. This is the perfect adaptation right? of this material. I mean, it, it's, you yeah. know, the action at every single step is mind-blowingly good. Um, all of the character stuff is, like, adapted so well. And, like, in an anime sense, like, the episodes and how the episodes are constructed in... Like the because every episode, like with a lot of the great stuff in season one, feels like while well, it is part of a big serial narrative, 
there's also like a meaty story being told in episode by episode chunks that move the overall characters forward in interesting ways every single time. Um, with layered memories probably being the most distinct and kind of striking one of those this season in particular. Um, but it's throughout everything, it is the best possible anime adaptation of what is a truly great shonen manga that you could ever imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So they have already announced that season three is greenlit. Obviously, yes. You no, know, yeah. that's not that. This would have had to really crater in the ratings, and even then, I don't think that. Yeah. So season three will be the Swordsmith Village arc. They've announced that. If you haven't read the manga, you are in for a treat. Yeah. This is one of my favorite stretches of the whole series. We will get two Hashira and a kind of mini Hashira mm-hmm. in the next arc. It's really good. That one is. Two chapters shorter than than uh, the Entertainment District arc, but they're pretty much the same length. I would actually say Swordsmith Village might take like an extra episode to adapt, just because yes. it's actually denser, even if it's shorter. I agree. Um, but I would assume that'll be a one core season, twelve mm-hmm. or thirteen episodes. Or fuck it, you know what? Ushifufa Table can do whatever they want. If it's six one hour episodes, I bet they'd get away with it. Um, you know, at this point. Yeah. But yeah, so probably one core. That'll probably air late this year or next year. Um, but then I am super curious how they break up the rest of the manga because there's no obvious way. Like, you could do Infinity Castle in a 26-episode season, but I don't know if you would have the like time to animate it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you could do it from a like structural sense, but I don't think you could do it from a production sense. I feel like they're going to have to find a way to split it in the middle somewhere um, and just have to... Like, there's no clear spot to do it. You just have to suffer a, like wait next year to get the rest of it kind of thing. But like, I suspect that that's probably what they'll do because there really isn't any clear way to cut it. Um, but one thing, what about the infinity yeah. castle movie trilogy? You know, you could do it. I mean, it'd be weird. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be, it would be, a, it would be an out of left field approach, but you know, they could go for a bunch of weird movies and shit like that. Um, one thing I do want to say, like thinking about the future is one fun thing about this season, and it was like this at the end of season one also, is you get a couple of little kind of almost vocal cameos of characters that we'll get a lot more of later. And so you get to see where their head is at in terms yeah. of casting, and you get two in this I season. I know who you're going to talk about. <laughs> you get the first swordsman, and then you get the upper second demon, who we will see a lot of in the last arc. The first swordsman who we get in that one brief flashback is voiced by Kazuhiko Inoue, who he would be best known as everybody's favorite Naruto character, Kakashi. Um, he's of course he's in fucking everything he's just like one of those great older male voice actors that's incredible casting I'm very excited to see more of the because all that character stuff is obviously flashbacks um, but there's some really he was, good uh, scenes he was someone tweeted at us while we were recording because he's Jared in uh, Gundam Zeta yes it's true yep yeah um, <laughs> but then the other one also another Gundam character um, is uh, Miyano Mamoru is playing the upper second demon uh, and that is oh man, such good casting. Like that's not necessarily like I don't think that's exactly what I heard in my head when I was reading the manga dialogue. But he's the demon that shows up in the flashback for Gutado that makes Gutado and Daki like demons or like takes them to Muzan or whatever. Um, and that is some great casting. And like Miyano Mamoru just like lavishes over every single line of dialogue. I mean, it's such a deliciously evil character. He's probably like, other than Muzan, the most evil demon in the whole series. 
Um, and yes. like, I mean, because in that scene, he's fucking like just hauling in a half eaten woman over his shoulder. Like it's a really grotesque scene. Um, and Mia Nomomody like brings like all this sort of like sinister kind of like grace to the character that you would want, uh, especially knowing like what that character's whole thing is uh, later in the series. That is like, that is a grade A, like absolute perfect. That's like yes. casting Miki Swasher as Daki. That's just like, this is the perfect fucking choice to cast this character. I did not recognize him in, I mean, it's like three lines. Yeah. But like, I will have to go back and listen to that now because we've, yeah, he's such a, he can be such a vocal chameleon, uh-huh. but that is such, yes, that is, that is phenomenal casting. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. And so it's, I'm very excited. It's like that, you know, we got, at the end of season one, you get all the Hashida in and you see how it's like, here we have assembled the voice actors of Japan. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's it's just one of those where you feel like all the, like a bunch of great voice actors kind of lined up to be like, you know, hopefully this thing takes off because eventually I'll get, you know, great scenes. I mean, eventually it's going to be a long time, but eventually Tomokazu Sugita as the stone pillar is going to get the coolest fucking shit this entire series to play. Um, it's just going to be a while before that monk dude does some shit. But when he does some shit, you'll see how good that casting is. Um, and yeah, so yes. it's, it's one of the things that's exciting about the anime is you just get these little glimpses of like what they're going to do with some of the characters um, and, and who they're casting kind of stuff like that. And that was a, a fun thing to, to, to spot this season. I am curious how they're going to, or not how they're going to do anything, but how the public will react to some things in Swordsmith Village because Zenitsu and Inosuke are not in that arc. Mm-hmm. They yeah. appear at the very beginning. We really don't see them again until the training arc after that. So we might go a while without any significant Zenitsu or Inosuke. It does make me wonder if they will append the very short training arc before Infinity Castle to the Swordsmith Village episodes just to round out some of the extra cast and, and whatnot. You could do it if you win 13 episodes, I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious how they're going to handle all of that. Yeah, it's very much, I think it's it's something that is like, it's a very smart choice for that arc because it avoids the problem that a lot of Shonen stuff has when it starts ballooning characters. It like yes. com- overcomplicates fight sequences and stuff like that. Try to find something for every character to do. And since they introduce a lot of new characters or bring characters we've seen glimpses of into the forefront, there's not really room for Zenitsu and Inosuke, but it is a, it's one of the kind of surprising things about it um, is that they kind of whittle down some of the main cast and bring some new players in. Um, it's very much worth it. If that makes you sound disappointed, just know that like you're going to meet a character named Muichiro who's yep. going to make you cry and you're going to meet a really cool love Hashira. There's just all sorts of good stuff next season. Yeah, and, um, and now, Jonathan, because you've watched Iron-Blooded Orphans, uh, Kawanishi Kengo, the voice actor for Mikazaki from Iron-Blooded Orphans, is Muichiro in Kimasu Yaiba. So now, Jesus Christ, that's good casting. So now oh you'll God. have that experience. You know like that actor's like other most famous role, so you'll know that now going into yeah. Oxford Smith Village to watch that, because that's a fun one for that. Well, it, now it is one of my most anticipated things. If it's half as good as they did this time, it'll still be better than most things. Um, oh my god, I love Kimetsu no Yaiba. I said this last night on Twitter, and I know this sounds like exaggeration, but I think it might be true. If Ufo Table gets to finish this whole thing, which we have no reason to think they won't, and if they keep following the manga, and if the rest of it is half as good as what we've seen so far, this is going to be the best shonen anime ever made. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very likely. Yeah, I think I think if if the rest of the adaptation is it, certainly if it's at least as good as this or is even if it's worse than this, which I don't think it will be, I imagine it will be even better. Yeah, like it's I I think it would be very clear to me 
this in my experience, and I've seen a lot of Shin in anime, that this would be the best one. Because it just avoids... One, it, like, the source material is incredibly good, and the source material avoids so many of, like, the kind of pitfalls a lot of weekly Shonen Jump series can fall into, and the anime, in its own production sense, is avoiding those kind of pitfalls that the anime side can experience in different ways by having smart, short, focused production cycles. Um, it's, you know, because, like, you know, My Hero Academia is doing 26 episodes every single year, and, like, that's not really sustainable as the action kicks up more and more. Like, the last season or two of My Hero Academia that I watched, it was, like, a thing of where you could feel so much how split the production was between, like, the moments that really need it and then a lot of stuff that just didn't get as much production love as it needed because it wasn't feasible to do. Um, it feels like what this season proves is that UFO Table is, like, very smart and has been successful enough to be given the leeway to do the production they need to be able to do for the show, to do it the justice it deserves um and it like if that proves true for the rest of the adaptation i think that it will pretty handily for me be the best of these kinds of big shonen action shows Japan,